Welcome to Truth 30 with Joey Dumont, a podcast that debates our society's most politically compelling topics through the lens of slow journalism. Each show is investigated with a focus on narrative as well as discovery. We believe that the complexity of our culture today cannot be crammed into six-minute television segments or snippets and memes on social media, where ideology and entertainment has overtaken the creed of historical reporting. On the program, you'll hear the opinions of subject matter experts to help you separate the signal from the noise. Our collective goal is to better understand one another, not win a battle. After watching, you'll be reminded that a proper debate is not about victory, but that of inquiry, education, and viewpoint diversity. So tune in and talk amongst yourselves. You may even learn a thing or two. This week, my guests include two old media buddies from New York City. On the show, we explore the power of Ben Shapiro's growing media empire, why we believe the Democrats are going to lose the House and the Senate in 2022, the blatant lies of our liberal news media, and how the word racism has been redefined by left-wing activists and why it's a problem for all of us. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, there's your legal warning, gentlemen. We are on camera. (laughs) We are here to talk about a couple major topics today. Um, the first, I should first start by thanking you guys, my two media buddies uh, in New York City for gathering at Jimmy's house, which is kind of cool. I see that you're in the intellectual bunker of um, Jimmy's post-education where he can read with his cats. Read to my cat. Read to your cat. <clears throat> yes. So as you guys know, um, I have, for the last six months, had a fascination with this young man named Ben Shapiro. And as a liberal Democrat, and a proud one, most of the time, <laughs> um, I, I really wanted to understand who he was outside of the memes. So historically, and I don't know if you guys got these too, but I got memes that said, you know, Ben Shapiro owns the Lib, or Lib owns Ben Shapiro, whatever it may be. And most of his stuff was very cantankerous, and it was very conflicted, and they had these kind of battles going at one another. And the one thing I did glean quickly was that he was hyper-intelligent, very quick talker, and I didn't really spend much time on him after that. And then, as we're going to talk about at length today, uh, as I started to do some more homework on what I think is problematic with our politics, specifically on the left, is that we on the far left are going too far. And that's where I actually noticed Ben Shapiro taking ownership of what he calls the far left and where they're going too far with many things, which we'll get into. So let me first start by admitting I have a little bit of a a crush on Ben. Um, I've read two of his books. I read The Authoritarian Left and How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps, which are the two books that I referenced in my my notes today. I also wrote wrote a book, (laughs) read a book called Woke Racism uh, by John McHorter, which we'll get into to some degree. And then the book that you recommended, Kevin, which is Bad News uh, by Batya Ungersagan, which is a really ripping read. And uh, I had two of my journalists on the team also look at the book and kind of give me their feedback on it so we can kind of get into that. Um, I think that what I really also want to, as far as the meta narrative here, is that I believe that the Democrats, and this isn't (laughs) prophetic, I believe the Democrats are going to lose the House and the Senate in 2022, as do many pundits out there. And the reason for that is an extreme tenor specific to a lot of subjects around race, inequality, 
And some neo-Marxist language, terms like postmodernism, uh, neo-Marxism, all of those pieces and parts, which we'll get into with a lot of the books that I mentioned. And then this young man, Ben Shapiro. And the question of the day, is Ben Shapiro the most powerful man in media today? That is something that I believe. And my goal with uh, my two esteemed colleagues here who have, I think between the three of us, we have about 75 years of media experience. Probably <laughs> <And> so, 130. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kind of want to, you know, use, utilize our backgrounds, um, being in the media world, in the agency world, in the brand world, to kind of help my listeners understand what's about to happen in 2022. And so that's kind of where I want to frame it. Um, most of my friends on the left, as I continue to talk about Ben, are under the impression that he's racist, he's a bigot, he's a white supremacist, he's transphobic, and an overall bad human being. And in the six months of studying him, uh, the biggest sore that I could actually attach to him is his belief that transgendered people are mentally ill. And he goes way out of his way to make that point, which I don't Didn't necessarily apologize agree. for that. It was an old writing. And well, no, he I, I've watched a lot of his videos recently. Okay. Now, it wasn't even in the writings. He apologizes when he does things because he has the dumbest things I've ever done, which I think is really cool. And then he has like this whole list of things, which I, I commend because I, I don't think he is a bad human being by any standard. I think he's a good guy. Um, he's an Orthodox Jew. He's a highly educated young man, went to Harvard Law School, was a prosecutor in L.A. Um, and actually part of which where I started to like him, I watched him on Joe Rogan. Mm -hmm. And when he was with a group or with a person that wasn't attacking him, he was much more relaxed. Even his verbal cadence calmed down a little bit. And when they started talking about defund the police, that's kind of when I realized that he came from that vantage point as an expert. And so I was like, oh, okay, this guy studied, you know, what was going on as a prosecutor. He understood what was going on um, in Los Angeles. And so I, I really enjoyed his time there. And then from there, I also started watching him, uh, well, specifically with like critical race theory. He <laughs> has a very big belief on that, that the left has taken it too far. And, and unlike, unlike most of us, he's actually learned critical race theory in college. So... Correct. And right. that he talks right. about that. He right. actually said, you know, in law school, we studied critical race theory and we'll get into actually all of that. But first and foremost, now I kind of want to talk about you guys. So again, I, I love both of you guys. I think what represents on the screen here, which is important and currently allegory as opposed to um, news is that we all have different political leanings. Mm -hmm. Kevin um, is our resident conservative Trump supporter <laughs> twice. <laughs> and Jimmy, you've talked about being a libertarian with a twist. Right. Um, and I obviously, I, I think I categorize more as a centrist liberal. According to my true liberal friends and my progressive friends, that means I'm right wing. But that's where <laughs> I sit today. Yeah. I was just told that today on, on a thread that I am a right wing uh, person because of my <laughs> oh, beliefs. Yeah. So I'm I'm getting more right, Kevin. To spell that. That's why right. a couple of years ago when I explained my version of libertarianism, I was told, "Well, no, you're actually a Democrat." I was like, "Hmm, that's there a joke." And I think that the fun part there is that the three of us have gone at it. Kevin and I specifically have gone at it pretty good. And, uh, and he didn't block me. I was impressed. 
I never block anybody. I, I, I shouldn't say that. I rarely block anybody. But <laughs> what I do say is that we as a group, Americans need to start to actually hear differing opinions without blocking and calling people racists and bigots. And, you know, I think that's actually um, an easy segue into one of the things that I think the confluence that is going to take over the Democratic Party is the fact that the far left has become a religion. Yes. It is no longer about just, okay, I have a belief. And if you don't believe it, then we can have a polite debate on why you believe something. It is, if you don't believe it, you're a heretic, you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're a white supremacist. And that I have been accused of a lot recently. <laughs> so that is something that is really happening. And that's the perfect storm that I kind of want to get into at some level um, with this discussion. And the thing that scares me the most because I do want to make sure that people understand that I fear Donald Trump. I think he's a very dangerous human being. I think that what's going on in the news today, specific to the January 6th attack, is real. I think that uh, what's going on with Mark Meadows is real. What's happening in the Senate hearings correctly or currently is real. Um, and so I will say this caveat, if all of this stuff comes out in the next four months, the Dems will have no problem winning <laughs> in 2022 uh, because there is a cancer in our body politic on the right as well. And that encompasses people like Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert and MTG and Matt Gates. And obviously, you know, Mitch McConnell, the boy, the man himself. So I'm not a fan of the GOP. I want to make sure that's abundantly clear to the listeners. But today we're going to focus on what scares me on the far left. And that's kind of where we go. So I also want to say that within four or five years that we used to have a phrase in our body politic, we would say things like I'm a Reagan Republican or I'm an Eisenhower Republican or I'm a, I'm a McCain Republican. I think in the near future, we're going to have people identifying as a Shapiro Republican because I genuinely believe he's a conservative. He also calls out people on the right in a very unique way. And he also he doesn't buy into the Trump narrative. So that's one thing that I wanted to get into here as well, um, is that he doesn't believe <laughs> Donald Trump. And here's an example of that. So there's this is from his book, The Authoritarian Moment by Ben Shapiro. There is little doubt that the rioters of January 6th were right-wing authoritarians. They invaded the Capitol building in order to stop the workings of democracy, overthrow the constitutional process, and harm those seeking to do their legal duty. Trump may have authoritarian tendencies, but he did not wield any authoritarian power. And whatever personal authoritarian tendencies Trump may have were checked throughout the administration. Trump certainly has engaged in authoritarian rhetoric. He utilized violent language. He suggested weaponization of the legal system. He called for breaches of the Constitution. So this is something that a GOP member currently would never say out loud, right? And that's another reason where Mr. Shapiro is gaining credibility with me. Well, you read what, he wasn't Breitbart originally, and you read why he left, right? Yeah. Because of when his press, when Trump's press secretary pushed one of the Breitbart reporters, then Breitbart did not support them. Correct. And he said, I'm out. I'm done. Yep. And I, so I believe, and again, I actually afford anybody coming and arguing with me against Ben and 
telling me about him. I now am a member, his all access member on the Daily Wire. I get all of his articles. I watch his stuff. And to be clear, also, I do not agree with most of his political leanings. I'm not pro-life. I'm not conservative, as the uh, term has been uh, historically known as, but I appreciate what he says. I believe that he is conserving institutions for a genuine purpose. I don't believe that he has any ill motives there. I also think that the way that he approaches things, like he, I just mentioned with Trump, is that he's attempting to do things. And by the way, from watching him over the last six months, he's getting better mm -hmm. every single day. He's becoming less, he takes himself less seriously. He has something now called Wokeology, which is a kind of a comedic bend where he says, you know, I'm going to try and guess what the scene is. And he'll put things up on the screen and he'll have people talking and he'll guess, well, that's intersectionality or that's birthing people or that's, you know, <laughs> whatever it may be. And, and it's, it's much funnier than I hoped it would be. <laughs> and he's getting more and more power. And so I think that's kind of where we can just dive into a little bit of this, Jimmy. I know that we were talking briefly last week about the show and I wanted to kind of get your take on it as a media expert. Do you want to talk a little bit about the media metrics of Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire just to kind of give the listeners an understanding of where he is compared to the likes of Tucker Carlson and, and some of the more powerful pundits on the right? Sure. One of the things to note about Ben Shapiro is that the bulk of his audience is not through what we'd call traditional media contact, right? I mean, yeah. he does have... Uh, his his podcast, he does also have radio presence, terrestrial radio presence. Yes. Um, and it's not insignificant. I think his radio presence is uh is is pretty pretty decent, but it reflects the same thing as his podcast presence. Yeah. Um he's got something like, let's see, what, what are some of the latest numbers I got today? Um so his podcast has 2.5 million listeners regularly within a 30-day period, um, according to Nielsen Audio. Um He's big with men, 1844, not, not, which is a fairly good core demo. Yeah. And um, almost all of his engagement for that, also on his YouTube channel, he has about 4, 4 million. 3.97 million was the last count I got here. Um, so let's round it up to four, because by the time you say it, he's probably got 4 million. Um but almost all of his traffic comes direct. So people are looking for him. About 65% of the people who find him are looking for him. They go, Ben Shapiro, and they go straight there. Um, another 25% all come from his Facebook presence, which is cannot be discounted. His Facebook presence is probably where he swings the most juice, right, is, um, is there. 162 million views on Facebook in the month of November. Now, that's a ton all right that's yeah. just it's a shitload of of views let's pretend that each person who's come to his site as a unique viewer is clicking you know i don't know generating three of those i mean it's still gigantic he's still monstrous that's still a huge audience right that's bigger than there's not a single magazine in the world or uh, a single television show in the united states that gets that many people so that, that's, that's an awful lot. Now we can discuss, you know, how deep that is and how much attention people are paying and whatever. Fine. But the number of exposures that this guy's getting is massive. Um, in terms of his uh, YouTube channel, 
he ranks about the he ranks about the same in YouTube as the number of people who watch Tucker Carlson. If you look at last month's numbers, it's a teeny Tucker Carlson comes in at about three hundred thousand more viewers thereabouts. Um, but on Twitter, he doesn't have nearly as many. I mean, he actually has more. He has four point seven million, I think, followers on Twitter. Uh, Shapiro's got three point seven million followers on Twitter. Uh, but Tucker Carlson doesn't have a YouTube audience because. I don't, I don't think he really can. There was an independent channel yet for a while, but because he's part of Fox, it's whatever Fox is. And you can't get a breakout of who's just watching Tucker on Fox. I imagine it's not insignificant because kind of like Saturday Night Live, I never watch it on TV, but if somebody sends me a link to something that they saw on it that was funny, you always go to YouTube and watch it. Um, but that being said, Ben Shapiro also hasn't been around forever. I mean, Tucker Carlson has been around. I mean, I used to watch him on, what was it, Firing Line? Or what, what the hell is the, the Crossfire? Oh, on, Crossfire. Uh, on CNN. <laughs> who, I mean, was, who was the poor schlep that represented the Dems? I can't even remember his name. Well, you had Frank Begalia for a while. Yes, he was, that's he, who he it was. was. I think he was the guy who was opposite Tucker. Because you had was. different people switching in. Yes. You also used to have um, oh, uh, William Sapphire, you know, was, was the... Yeah represented one side they went through several hosts but it was tucker carlson who was famous for getting berated by john stewart on air um for being a being dangerous to democracy and a big faker and what the hell is it with the bow tie um like he he, he actually made a comment about bow tie um yes he did tucker carlson's had oodles of time to build much much larger audiences but he's kind of topped out. I mean, if you ask me, that's what's happening. He's sort of as big as he's going to get, given the kinds of exposures he's allowed or he's allowed to have or has allowed himself. This kid is, is, is rocketed. I mean, yeah, Daily Wire was founded, what, in uh, 2015, I think? I think it was actually 2016. But yeah, because it, it's after he left the Breitbart in that little huff. And then he went back and started it with his co-founder and they raised a bunch of money. And they actually were told that they didn't think it would work by the investors originally and now i think you you pulled the numbers yesterday doesn't aren't they making 65 million dollars a year in they, annual they pulled revenue? 65 million gross revenue in 2020 who yeah. knows what it is this year it's incredible <laughs> yeah but, but i can't imagine he's got a lot of bills to pay right for that media for that particular media operation um it's not like he's got to pay slotting fees to carriers for cable or something i mean he doesn't have to he doesn't have to do anything with it he can just pay himself and his folks and and roll it into investing in growth or whatever it is they're going to do. But that's not an insignificant amount of money for no. a kid. No. I mean, no. I mean relative to it, us old yeah, guys. Yeah, he's 37. <laughs> yeah, he's 37. And, and that's another example where he's brand new to the media scene. And we know how long it takes to build an audience in any area, whether it's brand building or whether it's you know media in general. That's an impressive ramp up, right? What he's done there is staggering. And that's, again, where I think that people don't know who he is and they're not paying attention. And that's where his power comes from. And the fact that he is mainstream conservative. I mean, let me ask you guys this. I have yet to find any true racism. I've seen things that have been hinted towards it or bigotry. Again, the transphobe side aside, what do you, have you found anything on him that represents any of those claims? Specific to white supremacists. I, I even tried Googling, you know, Ben Shapiro that raises nothing. Nothing pops up. And you know things would if, if there had been. And when when I hear him ask questions, he did a really long thing down at the University of Florida or one yeah. of the Florida schools 
open, open question and answer. And they tried to trip him up and he doesn't trip up easily. No, he's almost, it's almost like Aaron Sorkin is writing his reply. <laughs> that's you know right. I mean? that's, funny. that's I mean, funny you say that. Yeah. He's so smart and he's so prolific with his language. I think he needs to slow down his cadence a bit, but other than that, He's yeah. he's just got this time bomb. It, and anytime someone says, well, by the way, what do you think of this? He's like, well, that's just not the case. And then he just bam, bam, bam. And, yeah. he, and he just fires off data points like they were right there, just waiting for that exact question. And so, yeah, I, I again, I welcome anybody, anyone who's listening to this, who wants to chat with me about Ben Shapiro, um, come on the show and tell me why I'm wrong and why he's not going to be the most powerful man in media if he's already not the most powerful man in media today. I mean, something else, I was just going to say something else to note about Ben Shapiro, because, I mean, we're talking about the individual, but also the company, right, of Daily Wire. You know, a lot of people don't know this. They bankroll movies. I mean, there's there's movies, like actual theatrical yeah. release movies. I saw a preview of one the other day. I'm like, I'd go see that. Yep. You know, the woman is locked inside her pantry because somebody's invaded her home or whatever. I mean, forget her for kids a, outside. Right. Forget yeah. for a minute all the like subtext of what that might actually mean. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to try to call the, the cigar is just a cigar here. But, um, you know, that's also influential, right? I mean, he's creating yes. not just news product. Like there's media news product, and I hate to use the word news, but let's call it that. And then there's media culture product. And he's, yeah. his outfit is pumping that out that may end up ultimately being far more influential and give him a lot more sway in the ecosystem than, you know, being a quick talking, you know, head in front of a brick wall doing, doing his podcast. I would what? agree. And he's also hiring journalists. Mm -hmm. And I mean, really good journalists where they're going, he admits his slants and I'll, I'll actually read it later. Where can I find it? He talks about his, um, how he comes out to talk about his paper, but yeah. What I think is really important too, specific to my upbringing, as you guys know, and, and Kevin, you are along a lot with my friends from high school and from the Midwest where I grew up. I have a lot of friends that are conservative. I have a lot of friends that voted for Trump. And then our friends, you know, Jimmy uh, from New York City and San Francisco are always DMing me and like, who are these people and why don't you? Why don't you I, 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 I was getting stuff like that all the time. I mean, especially during the election in 2016, like that yeah. era. That was when it was really kind of at its height, I think. Um, I still get it from time to time. I'm not going to mention some names, but you know, Kevin here is the only, <laughs> he, he wasn't the only one that, uh, oh, and, and, and people are like, who the hell is this guy? And again, just to be clear, I started the whole thing as an anti-anti-Trumper because there was so much misinformation being spread about things that Trump did that they accused him of saying that he really didn't say that everything was taken out of context. So I started that way, maybe a little munch, Munchausen is that I mean, I started accepting him a little bit more than I should have. Uh, I, I, I do want to say I lost him on January 6th, 2021. No, I, I think that's, isn't wait, is Stockholm? that Stockholm, Stockholm that's syndrome? It. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to call it Helsinki syndrome, but Stockholm. that's just where you have to overpay for it. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the reasons that I think that that Shapiro made me do, I'd love to see his growth over the last couple of years. He really reminds me because I used to do a lot of outside sales. So I was driving around a lot yeah. and making a lot of stops and go. So I had AM radio on. So I ran across um, uh, Rush Limbaugh many, many, many years ago. And he was my companion in the afternoon. And he had an interesting delivery <clears throat> system 
he didn't necessarily call himself a pundit as much as he called himself a political entertainer. He did. He did. He yeah. so, always in his system. Mm-hmm. So there was always a lot of entertainment value in little funny jokes and little funny skips that he would do. Well, he's dead. And I can't help wondering if a lot of his audience is now migrating because Shapiro's kind of got this thing shtick going only for millennials. He does. What I wonder, though, is that because such a big part of, of Limbaugh's thing was angertainment, mm-hmm. like, yeah. I don't feel this, I don't feel the heat from Shapiro. I mean, and again, I, I his think his earlier ones where he was called, yes. well, the right. but I think that he did, that because, I mean, he's, because he's, I mean, he's from a generation that was saturated in media, right? So, yeah. He, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, 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 there's a lot of things you can read. And even I think some of what I was reading in, in preparation for this, and it might've even been McWhorter who had mentioned it, where so much of a certain group of people, you know, under a certain age, kind of are trained mm-hmm. to respond mm-hmm. to things as if they were on camera or as if they were in public, um, sometimes to their own detriment. But um, he, I, I kind of feel like he had a natural sense for how to attract mm-hmm. an audience. And now he, it reminds me of this, my favorite, favorite line in one of my favorite, favorite movies, Big Night. Anybody seen that movie? Oh my Stephen God. Tucci, Tony Shalhoub. One of my favorite movies of all time, specifically... <laughs> The risotto scene. <laughs> right, so, I mean, the whole film is one of like the most like like I mean for me it's up there with like John Carpenter's The Thing as a perfect movie. Um, a perfect movie. But uh, there's a great line where Stanley Tucci's trying his character's trying to figure out like how come I can't get any customers, um, and the Ian Holm character, which I think is funny that he's playing an old Italian, but he says you know first you give the people what they want, then you can give them what you want. And I kind of feel like Shapiro maybe instinctually did a little of that, right? He started, you know, kind of got his starter dough going, and now he can make whatever kind of sourdough he wants. Um, you know, it's a really good point. And that's actually what I was talking about, specific to his migration towards mm-hmm. being a much better human being. I don't, I think the earlier stuff that I watched was very venomous, where he would attack, and he would do that because it does get ratings, right? We know the messy middle doesn't sell. So you can yeah. talk about the middle, but if you're not far left or far right, then you're kind of invisible. And he did a really good job of that. And that's also why I didn't really take him seriously at first, because I was like, well, he's just attacking the left. The, the left is easy to attack. Right. The owning the libs is where he wanted to, was kind of where he started. Correct. Right? Correct. And you get paid for that, right? I mean, that's a big yeah. thing. He's got a drink or a, a thermos that says, I think it's liberal tears. So it's in his drinking the liberal tears. He actually right. has that on his desk. Um, and, and you know, that was part of the shtick. And that's to your point, Jimmy. I think that he has moved past that. And now he's starting to become much more of a serious journalist and hiring journalism or hiring journalists to actually represent specific cases. And, you know, critical race theory, defund the police, gender ideology, gender dysphoria, you know, all of these different complex topics where he they they report on them right candace owens is on his show and i have yet to figure out that young lady but she actually had which i thought was almost an onion joke where she said something to the effect of she wrote an article about who is the real conspiracy theorists and then the next day she interviewed alex jones 
<laughs> I was like, okay, I don't, I don't know what to think of that. And so, you know, if you're, if you're trying to be serious there, Miss Owens, I don't, I, I miss that. And I watched it and I can't watch Alex Jones. I just can't. He's a, he's a fucking buffoon. And I just, I have no respect for him. And that to me is where, you know, they can still go too far on, on a lot of the stuff that, that's on the daily wire, but the majority of the stuff I think is starting to gel with a lot more people. And the fact that we're pushing people to the right because of what we're doing on the far left is an issue. And, you know, so here's an example of what he talked about as well. Perhaps the problem is that if you attend church regularly, perhaps it's you raise your children with traditional social values. It could be that you believe that men and women exist and that biological differences exist, or that police are generally not racist, or that the American flag stands for freedom rather than oppression. This is what he points out why we're losing, we being the liberals, are losing a big chunk of our demographic. Because if you don't believe these things, then you are going to be criticized and shunned and re referred to as a bigot. And the reason that I think that that stands true is I mentioned my upbringing. The majority of my friends, even 40 miles north of here in Santa Rosa, are Trumpers. And they believe this. They believe that they've been attacked. They believe that the liberals are elitists and dickheads and condescending. And it's really hard to argue that when you watch a lot of these articles. And, Why would you argue that? <laughs> yeah, well, we've argued that back and forth a lot. But yeah, I think that's a huge piece of it. And, and that, you know, and then he gets into something too, which we can jive into here. How dangerous is it for liberals to side with Ben? Because the whole idea of our body politic to try to get to try to get along, the olive branch, if you will, he goes into some really, I thought they were pretty shocking stories in his book about, there's one named Mark Buplus, and I apologize to Mark if I pronounce his name wrong, but he's a Hollywood actor and producer that approached Ben because he was doing a documentary on the Second Amendment. And he wanted to understand Ben Shapiro's knowledge, vast knowledge, specifically as a prosecutor in LA, about what he thought. And so Ben invited him over to the Daily Wire because at the time they were still in LA. They moved to Florida, which is another topic. But he invited this young man in. They had a great talk. They talked for 90 minutes. And then after he left, this young man was, well, actually it says a couple weeks later, this young man, Mark Bluplus, who is a Hollywood producer, tweeted the following. If you are interested in crossing the aisle, you should consider following Ben Shapiro. I don't agree with him on much, but he's a genuine person who has helped me for no other reason than to be nice. He doesn't bend the truth. His intentions are good. <laughs> and you can imagine what took place after that. A Twitter star. Absolute shit show. And as, yep. and this is Xen from his book, then the world fell in on poor Mark. After tweeting this publicly, he received, you know, boatloads of nasty tweets, privates. And then Mark's management team at the Hollywood production company said, hey, you need to send the following. So he retweeted this. This was his response. So that tweet was a disaster on many levels. I want to be clear that I am now, I no way endorse hatred, racism, homophobia, xenophobia, or any such form of intolerance. My goal has always been to spread unity, understanding, and kindness, but I make mistakes along the way. Sometimes I move too quickly when I get excited or fail to do enough research or don't communicate myself clearly. I'm really sorry. 
I now understand that I need to be more diligent and careful. I'm working on that, but I do deeply believe in bipartisan understanding and I will continue to do my best to promote peace and decency in the world. That said, I hear you. And I want to say thank you for those that reached out with constructive criticism. I have genuinely learned so much and wish everyone the best. <laughs> you doing this as he was writing this? Oh my God. I mean, it's like- so there, There's your short answer. How, how dangerous is it? Super dangerous. Super dangerous. Somebody. And there are probably either old time conservatives who will hate that I say this and new time conservatives who will hate that I say this or- have no idea who I'm talking about, but he could be a 21st century William F. Buckley. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I think he really has a good chance of being that, um, provided he dances between all the raindrops, which so far he seems to be doing. Um, yeah, I agree 100%. And I think that the one thing, and this is where he came in with a little more venom than I did. And I, Kevin, you watched my podcast on mm-hmm. Robert D'Angelo, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I actually filmed a former podcast with a young woman, a black female educator from Houston, Texas. And we talked at length about critical race theory, what's good about it, kind of where it's going wrong, specifically the oppressor oppressed narrative to kids that have yet to read books without pictures. And it was a very cool conversation. And so that was my first understanding of her book. I read the book. I didn't agree with most of it. And for those of you who don't know who it is, Robin D'Angelo is a DEI consultant. So she that's diversity, equity, and inclusion. And she has a PhD in white studies, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff. Highly educated woman. And as I said on my former podcast, I think that she has, she comes from a good place. I think she has a big heart. I think she's trying. But what I think she's done, and Ben did a unbelievably good job of pulling apart her book, White Fragility. And he did so on camera. And he did so by pulling it, breaking it down into seven huge problems with white fragility and what's wrong with it. And as I watched that, what's that? Seven reasons why white fragility sucks. Yes, it was something to that, something to that. And and (laughs) where, what she gets into and this is not hyperbole. She says that all white people are racist, much like Imbren Zendi does in his book, Anti-Racism. So anti-racism itself, and this is Ben's piece, and we'll get into anti-racism at length with John McCorder's book, because he does a much better job of breaking it down than Ben does. But the idea behind anti-racism is if you're not an anti-racist and that you're not preaching to destroy the institutions themselves, that have an origin in slavery and oppression, then you by definition are a racist. And if you as a white progressive, which which she says are the worst offenders because they think they're woke, but they don't know how deeply embedded racism is in every facet of our culture, our language, our institutions, and that no matter what you do, you cannot extract yourself from this racist poison that exists within your structure and you need to plead for begness and forgiveness for being white. I mean, and I, I I wish that was hyperbole. It's, it's nonsense. And so he breaks this all down and he talks about it in the sense of, and and this is public Coca-Cola hired her for one of her training sessions. And in the Coca-Cola session, 
they went into things about what does it mean to be a racist and so that I don't lose any of the credibility here. In one of her slides, she tells executives that in order for them to be good leaders moving forward, they need to be less white. This is in writing on the slides, which by the way is racist on its own, just that statement. <laughs> then she needs to go, she has descriptors that make all white people, here's what white people encompass. White people need to be less arrogant. You need to be less certain, less defensive, less ignorant and more humble all the while claiming that this kind of discrimination is designed to enhance inclusion. And she's doing this at scale with as many people that will hire. And by the way, she's been phenomenally successful in this endeavor. Her book, last I thought it was 800,000, but I think it's even more than that. She wrote in 2018, and then after the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, her book went crazy as did in Branzendi's book, and this whole anti-racist movement kind of powered up on that front. And that's where an example of left-wing ideology that is being embraced by a, a minority of liberals, by the way, but is now getting tons and tons of press because it's so far removed from reality that it's pushing even liberals like myself away from the party. Well, and that's why I agree with, uh, what was her name, Acacia? Uh, your, your, my guest. Yeah, it was wonderful. At first, it was very uncomfortable because she said some hard things. Um, as I thought about it over the week, I realized that she was right about most of it. But the one thing that she ties back to is the reason that people are writing these things. And she and Ben both said the same thing. You know, it's sort of like the person who invented the radar detector or the radar gun, then went out and invented the radar detector. He covered both ends. <laughs> same thing. <laughs> white fragility she says here's the problem you are how can you be saved i can come teach your company i can save you yeah only i can save you <laughs> only i can and, and that's, that's where she and and ben agree it's very trumpian it is <laughs> well i mean it's a wonderful circle <laughs> i mean i always like to say and i say that to my family quite frequently so my, i mean my parents are very very conservative i come from a very large catholic family that um you know if my folks could have put a picture of Trump next to the Pope without feeling they were being sacrilegious, they probably would have. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I always tell them whenever they want to advocate a position, and I was like, it doesn't matter. Right? The first question you should always ask is, where is the money? Yeah. I don't, I, and I'm not saying it all breaks down there because it doesn't, but it's always an excellent first question to ask. And there's a, a there's a big market for this. I mean, that is what we're talking about. We're still talking about media culture product. A media culture yeah. product doesn't sell to a lot of people. I mean, to your point about the newspapers, this is one thing that has has helped. Is you know the penny papers sell can sell a lot more because they only cost a penny, mm -hmm. and that audience is not buying twenty nine ninety five hardcover books about racism or the anti racism. I mean, they're not. That is not the consumer of that cultural product. Um, the people who read the Atlantic are the are, are the, the consumers. So, so, yeah, though I mean I'm, I do like the Atlantic quite. A, I mean, <laughs> I like the Atlantic. I don't want to tell you. Uh, it's usually this really great writer, John McWhorter, is a regular. It's a fantastic now. publication. Um, and his stuff. It's, in not, it's not your favorite. I know your favorite publication is the New York Post, buddy, Kevin. Uh, you actually know <laughs> why? You know why? You know why it is my favorite pu a publication. You like when the ink to fuck with us? Hands. Yeah. No, you like when, you like when the ink gets on your hands while you're taking shit. I I told you my father was a local, uh, a small town newspaper publisher. 
I like local news. That's the only way to get local New York news. Right, but I mean, again, it's not news. the daily news or, or the post. <laughs> well, and, and then, you know, what he also gets into is after he talks about Robin and what she's done and how toxic she is, uh, I, you know, Acacia actually broached the subject in a different way, and I didn't even get it, which kind of shocked me as I watched the the review on it. I said, she asked me a question, why? Who is hiring her? Mm-hmm. And why? So if you're going to actually work on diversity in a corporate boardroom or a corporate structure in itself, why is your first thought a white female, mm-hmm. right? She's like, why don't you hire someone of color? Why don't you hire someone of any ethnicity? Why don't you stuff from someone who actually has the lived purpose, which is a big thing on the left, right? It's So if I've had that actual lived experience, I have a much better platform to share that level of wisdom and then attempt to what we're supposed to do with this type of training is come closer together on racial issues. And I agree that we need to do that. I don't think anyone of reason disagrees that we have to get better as a culture with this. And I also agree with her in the sense that if you're going to make any progress, you need to go to the people in power. And a lot of the people in power in corporate America, it's in the, you know, we're in the top quintile as far as salary and income and deferred benefits and health share, you know, healthcare, all the things that allow us to have these kind of debates. We have the freedom to read about these kind of things and, and read books and opine upon them and, and, and talk with our buddies and pontificate. It, it does work. And so then you can, from the top down structure, say, okay, we need to work on things that matter. We need to have more diversity. And in our industry, guys, and I know, you know, you've been in the agency business forever as well, Kevin. Mm-hmm. We, in our agency, we had, you know, before I left, we had gay, a gay creative director, a lesbian associate creative director, Asian women, blacks, whites. We had more whites. But the reason we did it wasn't because it was mandated. And again, this is an isolated case to an industry. But for us to tell stories for brands, we needed to understand a diverse demographic. And the only way to do that is to have diversity on the team. And that's not just ethnic and racial and political, but then there's also the viewpoint diversity, which the three of us, I think, represent very well. You can have different upbringings. You know, we have our resident scholar from Oxford and Jimmy. We have you that went to a really good school, University of Washington. And then you have me, junior college dropout, who got lucky enough to get into the industry through the business development chain. And so that was where like, okay, we represent things. And then even bigger than this, and I talked about this with, I don't know, a former guest, is that there's a a very popular professor named Dr. Jonathan Haidt. And he's written a couple amazing books. His latest book was The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, and it talks about safe space on college campuses and how there's way too many left-leaning professors cool book. His first book was called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics. And he broke things down in the same way that we break things down, guys. When we work with the big, you know, the five personality traits, specific Mm -hmm. to demographics and ethnographics and psychographics, hey, here's where our story is going to go and here's how we're going to create this narrative. He did the same thing. And that's why it really attached to my brain because I already had that at least foundational knowledge. When if you look at someone in a corporate environment, that is traditionally conservative, 
that's a really good person to have run a division. Because if they're conservative by definition, according to Dr. Jonathan Haidt, is that they have traits in their personalities that are such as sanctity and order, right? Which are really big things because they want to conserve as a conservative institutions. And then on the left, you have folks a lot of times in strategy who are very progressive. They like progress. They want to blow shit up, right? And to do that, they happen to be very good strategists. And so when you have all these people working in concert for the development of a story or a waterfall narrative as it relates to a campaign, and then what does that sequential messaging look like? All of those pieces and parts, I think, are a no-brainer in the industry that we come from, right? We have to have that level of diversity in the business to be successful. And that, I think, is where diversity training, equity training, inclusion training can be very beneficial. I mm-hmm. think if you push that narrative too far in the sense that everyone's a white supremacist, oh, and by the way, they have to stop using that because words mean shit. So yeah, white, supremacy, word supre- white supremacy to me, it connotes things like dickheads in pointy hats on horseback lynching Red black hurts. Yeah, that's not... You can say that there's, you have implicit bias is maybe a more polite way to talk about some of this, but actually telling people that their beliefs are based in white supremacy, and that's her language. That's, she actually uses that on slides. I've seen it. It's horrifically stupid and it's not productive. And I can't believe that we're even having this conversation as a culture. You started off today talking about, you know, the civil discourse that people used to have. I, I, I'm older than you guys, so I remember back 60 Minutes when they had the point-counterpoint with yeah. Gina Alexander and um, what was the guy's name? On, on 60 Minutes. Minutes. Let's see who we have. We had Morley Mike Saver. Wallace. And Mike Wallace. <laughs> before then. Uh, the original Before one. Mike Wallace? He's like 170 years old. Yeah, it was before <laughs> Mike Wallace. Gina Alexander, and I can't remember the other guy's name. And they would have a, a, a topic. If you, You've seen it, right? They would have yeah. a topic, and they'd talk both sides. Civilly, like, like you're in a bar, like you talk to your grandmother. It, it, it was so civil. That's when Saturday Night did the spinoff with, with uh, Jane Curtin being Shana. Right. Right. Jane, you ignorant slut. Well, that's the way all of our discourse is now. We're calling everybody ignorant sluts and hanging up on them. No one's well, talking anymore. Heck, we're not even calling them that. We're wishing we were dead. I mean, yes. Man, Bill Maher had a great, I mean, I don't agree with Bill Maher on a lot of things. Um, and then other times I'm like, exactly. I, I'm getting but, more and more to them. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, you know, he had a segment where like, that's what it is now. We're not talking to each other. People are wishing they were dead. No, yeah. I disagree with you so much. I wish you were dead. You're like, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, yeah what, what I mean, could go wrong with that with a little booze and guns? Next thing you know, everything is, you know. And when that happens, this is what happens, right? Um, and it's easier and I don't want to get into the idea of I think how so much identity has become external instead of internal. And so the more we need to see who we are reflected in what's around us and the media environment makes that mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. The only other way in order to heighten my selfness is to denigrate otherness. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, God, if you and me are kind of the same, well, then I'm not so special. And so I need to think that you're not special. And eventually, if I think you're not special enough, eventually you're not even really human. And so you know what? Right. I wish you were dead. Die. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> way to bring it back. I mean, there you go. That's what happened. Oh, and that's part of the social justice warrior <laughs> pin, right? And I know that's an overused phrase, but that's also something that Ben gets into at length. 
Specifically, he refers to it as a religion. John McCorder goes into granular detail as to why it is a religion. It's not like a religion. It is a religion, which we'll get into. But he talks about this. I don't know if you guys read about this, but over the past 12 months, there were three scholars, James Lindsay, Helen Pluckrose, and Peter Bogosian. I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but it's in Ben's book. They wrote 20 fake papers, Mm -hmm. fashionable jargon to argue for ridiculous conclusions and tried to get them placed in high-profile journals in fields including gender studies, queer studies, and fat studies. Their success rate was remarkable. By the time they took their experiment public, Seven of their articles have been accepted for publication by ostensibly serious peer-reviewed journals. Seven more were still going through various stages of the review before they actually admitted it was a joke. Now, Peter has left his port as a professor at Portland State, and Helen and James are now pundits, I think most of who have their own podcasts and are talking about this at <laughs> length. But get this, some of the this is an accepted paper. On the topic of whether masturbating while thinking of someone makes you a sexual abuser, <laughs> since the object has given her con- without her consent. That's a real paper that was accepted. Another one accepted discussed transphobia and homophobia from straight males could be overcome through receptive penetrative sex toy use. <laughs> I just okay, and then one paper rewrote a section of Mein Kampf using women's studies terminology. <laughs> so I guess you can make this shit up, right? I mean, this, this is the kind of stuff where when you read this, you're just like, okay. I mean, and, and that's where people continue to say, this is just fringe. This is just fringe. This is just fringe. This is not, this is part of the academy only. And that's been a big discussion. And that's where I can weave back in Dr. Height. So Dr. Height wrote his book, the Colony of the American Mind, which talks to what he talks, what he actually coined. It's inter- institutional disconfirmation, meaning that in after World War II, professors came out into schools two to one conservative versus liberal. Mm-hmm. Then in the 80s, maybe four to one, six to one, the early 90s, eight, early aughts. 10, and now they're 14, 16 to one, meaning that you have so many liberal professors that it's imbalancing the academy. It's it's a problem. And that's actually part of why Ben Shapiro chose that story, because when you have a whole bunch of religious left-wingers in a body politic, or excuse me, in, a, in the academy, specifically in social sciences, that's how you become acceptable. That's how you get promoted. It's how you get your PhD postdoc work. It's how it all happens. But you have to adhere to the ideology, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be part of it. And if you push against that, it actually affects your career. And mm-hmm. that was a big thing with his book where he talked about it being fringe. Fast forward four years, because a lot of the research came out of 17, 2018 research. And his talk was that in 2013, kids in college for the first time had something called safe space. And that's where originally had to do with marginalized communities, black communities, trans communities, LGBT. And I think that has some merit. I'll just, cause I don't want to dive too deep into that subject where I think it has zero merit and it's actually deleterious to young minds is that when you try to give people safe space because of ideological and emotional harm caused by 
competing ideologies. So if someone on the campus is wearing a red hat and preaching the GOP mantra, there are kids now in college that need to find a safe space to deal with the harm because the, the rhetoric was violent in its language and it caused me physical harm, which is also something that now that is no longer just part of a small, you know, milieu within the academia. It is moving. And so Dr. Height started something called the Heterodox Academy to study this from an academic perspective. He now has 5,300 academics and social sciences and otherwise that, and you, it's a cool thing. I belong to it now and you can watch to your point earlier, they have point counterpoint. They'll have two conservatives and two liberals talk about a subject, whether it's safe space or critical race theory or gender ideologies or whatever it may be. And it's a very constructive platform for people to go to. And I love it. But the reason I mention that is that this isn't no, this is no longer fringe. This young group of men and women who went to college undergrad in, in 2013 are now in our NGOs, our nonprofits, our corporate sector, our institutions specific to education, and they are very vocal. And this is again, a big problem for, in my opinion, traditional liberals, because most of us don't believe what this small minority believes, but they're so loud and so vocal and so powerful in their outreach specific because of digital and how they can actually have a platform and talk. This is starting to affect universities, this is starting to affect the academy, if you will, and that's a huge piece of what Ben Shapiro is propagating on his platforms and on his shows yeah. and during his presentations. It's back, real. Back, back in the, the Jurassic period when I went to a college, <laughs> you know, colleges used to be places that had freedom of thought, freedom of expression, new ideas. I mean, I was, I've always been center right in, in my thinking. So Jane Fonda came to do a speech. I was first in line to go listen. I, I didn't want to cancel her like they canceled Ben. I right, that's a great thing. They did. They canceled him at Berkeley. They, they didn't him. cancel him. He didn't because he went, but they had to up. They had to. They invested six hundred thousand dollars in security, security for him to come to the campus. And this is what I said. I interviewed a professor from Berkeley about this. He's a former professor from Berkeley, and I said, you know, isn't that kind of against the whole? 1964 free speech thing at Berkeley. I mean, you guys as a school, and you went to Berkeley undergrad. You, you tell did. me, Jimmy, like, isn't that the most bizarre, illiberal thing you can possibly do is to deplatform someone like Ben Shapiro and accuse him of being a white supremacist, racist, xenophobe? I mean, it's, all it's, hard, it's, it's hard for me to even imagine that only because, now granted, it was ancient times when I was, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I think I wrote my thesis on my roommate's Apple IIe. I mean, it was like, you know, it was a long time ago. Um, but you regularly had lots of people. I would say two opposing views, but there's always more than two, as we know. Um, arguing out front of whatever building mm -hmm. it happened to have broken mm -hmm. out in, and that is because that's what people of a certain age used to do mm -hmm. when they were trying to kind of figure out who they were. I mean, you weren't just figuring out who you were based on what you wore, but also how you thought and how you mm -hmm. expressed that thought, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, Berkeley, when I was there, it was uh, when they put in the free speech space. So I don't know if you've been to campus there, but there's two parts. There's lower sprawl and upper sprawl. And I have no idea if they still call it that. For all I know, sprawl did something mean to 
Native Americans, and now <laughs> it's called something else. Right. I don't know. Right. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, you're probably getting all kinds of hate now. I said something like that. I, I, and I don't mean like with in love of my heart. If you're a bad person, you're a bad person, then we yeah. should you know treat you as such. But um, there's like a circle, like a brass circular platform put in the middle of Sproul Plaza and it is considered a free speech space and a free where you stand there and you could say whatever you want and no one can come get you and cops can't mess with you and all of it was born from Mario Salvio standing on top of a cop car parked on UC Berkeley campus I think it was 1963 or 64 um saying we should have the right to protest Vietnam War mm. um you know, at a time where it wasn't popular to protest the Vietnam War yet. Right. You had ROTC on campus and you had, you know, a lot of veterans, different, like that wasn't the thing to do. But the police would not allow you to hand things out. And it was the university's position that you are not allowed to hand out any kind of form of collateral to advocate a point of view. Clearly that has changed over time and, and they established this. There was never an attempt to prevent anyone from saying something mm-hmm. at the time. As odious as it might have been that they were saying it, it's just everyone was a lot more Voltarian, right? They disagree with every word you say, but fight to the death for your right to say it, which is misattributed to Voltaire. Really, it was his biographer said, but whatever. Um, <laughs> who cares? I hate to be that guy, um, but I'm that guy. Who was Socrates' biographer? That would have been interesting. Yeah, Plato. Um, <laughs> Plato, yeah. I <laughs> know. You know, and, and Plato has one of my favorite the things that he did, right? Which was opinion is the wasteland, right? Between knowledge and ignorance. Um, he did, I think he used the word swamp or, or medium, but still sounds the same. Um, I can't imagine that happening now. I mean, like, I can't think, I don't think anybody can say anything. I mean, you would know more recently having spoken to a recent professor there, but... I remember John Searle, who was my philosophy language professor. He was a big part of the early free speech movement. And quite quickly, within, I'd say, five or six years, became rather disillusioned with it. Because even then, though nothing like what we have today, there's the tiniest bit of, if you were like, hey, get those North Viet Cong commies out of there. Like, you weren't really supposed to do that out loud too much, too often. Right. So there was even a tiny hint of that then. But it was nothing like what we're talking about here today. Like that. No, and I think that's, that's where it's becoming a problem. And, and Ben points this out. And, you know, as a group, I think one thing we need to pay attention to is fact is important, but a groundswell of opinion does matter. Right. So when you look at, when you say left-wing media and, and, Kevin, we've gone at this over the last five years, you know, you say it's left-wing, it's the New York post, it's the New York times. I don't trust them. Right. And a big part of that is exactly what he's talking about within his, and Ben being he is that because the left is in control of the institutions, he believes the authoritarian left is more dangerous than the right, which I couldn't disagree with more. I mm-hmm. think the right is proving that. But what he does talk about is Angelani. Yeah, it is. And what he talks about. Authoritarian. Yeah, with, with his stats, which are, you know, it, he calls it the purge. 2020 Harvard Crimson Survey found that 41 percent of faculty identifies as liberal. 38.4 as very liberal. <laughs> okay, so right there, you're you're kind of all the way up. Moderates, 18.9 and 1.4 conservative. So but that's a know, really that, big deal. But that's all okay if you keep the majority of your beliefs to yourself and, and, and you teach the things or you report the things that, that need reporting. One, one of the things they brought... I think Eric Porras turned me on to this. It's a uh, 
It's a website called Blindspot. I don't know if you guys yeah. ever see it. Well, I do. I like that. It, it, it's fascinating. So this was last week. So I read just from this. So the story was DeSantis proposes civilian Florida State Guard military force he would control. That was the article. So he's he's So on the left, Ron DeSantis wants his own state militia. Uh, on the left, he wants a military guard he would control. From the left, a paramilitary force outside federal control. From the right, uh, wannabe dictator Dems aghast after Governor Ron DeSantis proposes Florida State Guard, even though 22 states already have one. I mean, come on, guys, tone down the rhetoric. On well, there's sides, the question. That's, that's well, let's save that for the for Batya's book, because that's really where we're, I think we're in good uh, shape. That's just nuts. But you don't get yeah. clicks, man. <laughs> you get clicks. You don't get clicks. And you guys have been pointing that out to me that I am starting to fall a uh, really bad victim of the clickbait. So I have really now tried to wean off. And the truth is, is most of it, like, so I don't know if I said this in your guys' presence before. The human attention span is a lot like a tomato. Like, there's only so many times you can slice it before it completely runs out of juice. And so we've got all kinds of things vying for attention. Headlines, kind of it. And if it's nice and shocking, we'll click on it. But I can speak, and I can only speak from my own personal experience in this. I'm sure somebody somewhere has done a study, or I hope they have. I wonder how many people actually read after headline. After, let's say, one or two seconds, maybe 10 seconds, you get a couple of lines in, and you're like, yeah, these assholes. And yeah. I gotta share this out to everybody and show how bad these people are. I like that. I mean, that's kind of how we do things. Um, and this is the problem with media as epistemology. Like knowledge, the only knowledge we have, like really, aside from looking out the window or leaving our house, is whatever shows up on our black mirror. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, the, the screen on your desk, the screen in your pocket, or you know, if you still have one in your living room, whatever which, author you choose to follow. But that, but that's and, yeah. it. And I mean, and that's that's it. Um, you know, I know you want to get to the media part later, but, but there's something. To no, just- we can dive in. It's a good segue. I think, cause that's a big piece of what I'm talking about too, because I'm trying to actually, and I think Kevin, you, you, we've talked about this offline, but I genuinely want to know what's going on on the right. So I do a lot of homework and I subscribe to right-wing media uh, outlets. And as a media person, I can even see how it's affecting my purview. The way that I see the world today is fundamentally different than it was six months ago when I dove into all things Ben. And so I might even be swayed now by his charisma or his articles or his flurry of sequential messages, right? It's starting to affect the way I see the world. And and that's where Dr. Jonathan Haidt in his first book talked about, he gave a great analogy of subjective emotion specific to politics in that we all, if as a left-wing person, if someone says Donald Trump, my immediate reaction is to swing left, be part of my tribe, call him an asshole, he's a terrible human being, blah, blah, blah. But what he says is the analogy is that emotion is the elephant and logic and reason is the rider. And once the emotion moves, Then the rider engages in a post hoc argument to justify why he went left or right. And I thought, wow, that's so cool. And then he goes into the, again, the personality traits and what makes people tick. 
and how they actually specifically get sucked into a particular ideology, whether it's right wing or left wing or far right or far left. Because now I think what I'm focusing on with my own media platform, True 30, is that I'm trying to understand the extremes. So I don't think Ben is an extreme person. I think he's in the middle. That's why I like him. It's why I follow him. I also think that on the far left, people like Robin D'Angelo and Imbran Zendi are on the far left in that sense that everyone's a racist and that you can't really get over this and this is part of our culture and we're all screwed and we can't fix this. That's a problem. And where we can get into the media as a whole, as a whole is where, to your point, Kevin, and again, thanks for this recommendation. It was a really good book. It's called Bad News by Batya Unger Sargon. And she's the deputy chief, deputy editor-in-chief of Newsweek magazine. And I watched her on a American Enterprise Institute. Uh, it was like a, you know, like this. It was a podcast and they had all these, they had two people on both sides. So people that have supported her book and two people that argued against her book. They were all polite. They were all colleagues. And it was really cool to watch. But what she talks about in her book is this, and I'll read this just so, because this is the opening of her book. There's a view that's taken hold of America's national news. It's not a new one. It's a long been a staple among academics and activists, but it's made its way out of the hallowed hallways of sociology and ethnic studies and seeped into America's mainstream via our leading national news outlets. It's the belief that America is an unrepentant white supremacist state that confers power and privilege on white people which is systematically denied to people of color. Those who hold this view believe our interconnected network of racist institutions infects every level of society, culture, and politics. This view is known as anti-racism or by the shorthand of being woke. For a long time, this view was the province of the far left and academics, but over the past decade, it's found its way into the mainstream by and large through liberal media outlets like the New York Times, NPR, MSNBC, the Post, Vox, CNN, The New Republic, and The Atlantic. That was her opening opus. And again, I had some of my journalists look into this. And the first one of my journalist buddies, David, said, leading news outlets is a very difficult term, right? So what does that mean? Yep. And then he, and, and using the words elite, we talk yep. about those things. How do you define elite? Is it culturally elite? Is it the wealthy? Is it economically elite? There's all these different factions within that. And so, I just broached that because her book is very powerful and it does start out, which I think is a good place for us to start out with what you guys were talking about, the penny press, right? It talks about Benjamin Day and Joseph Pulitzer and the whole idea behind original journalism, original newspapers, what they were, how important they were to our culture. And I think that is where, you know, I don't think we're ever getting back there, but you know, her book itself um, is a scathing indictment of left-wing news, left-wing ideology, and a, as she talks about, a religious movement. And so again, I think because she's selling books, <laughs> you know, she has a reason, and I think she takes certain things too far. But even in my homework, I did the same thing, Kevin. I looked up, you know, bad news is garbage, bad news is... I can't find... Hardly anyone. Your journalists, uh, they, they liked the book itself? My two buddies did not uh, as much. They are probably the most, the, my, my buddies that work with me in, in my company, um, they're older journalists, however. 
-hmm. So, you know, they're in their fifties as well. And so they didn't see this the same way and they haven't been active in journalism. They're, you know, writers uh, at large for different media outlets. So they're not in the newsrooms anymore. So I can't, I want to preface that. I should have prefaced that. It's that they're not actually in the newsrooms today. Part of what she's talking about on this front is that not only is the news itself, like the New York Times and the Washington Post, leading left to the point where it's difficult for people to feel there's objectivity mm-hmm. in the reporting, it's that the younger class of reporters comes from elite homes, elite families, and they go to schools like Columbia Journalism and Northwestern and to some of the top J schools in the country, and then they have to work in free internships which if your parents aren't supporting you, it's kind of hard to live in Manhattan and and have a free internship. So what she's talking about is that that is starting to have an effect on journalism. And she talks to a memo in 2014 at the New York Times that encourages all of its young reporters to build a very big social media following around their writings and their personalities. And in doing so, it does offer up the conflict is that if you write a truly objective piece that goes against left-wing ideology, you could be punished. You're going to lose your following and then you're done. Yeah. Well, it's because it's, I was thinking this the other day where we talked about like reverse racism or things like that. Like, Oh, like anti-racism is, you know, uh, the anti-anti-racism is that it's racism against white people. It's kind of more like ageism, where it's not that you are innately, it's not that you're innately bad, it's that you have nothing of value to contribute to the economy. You're not relevant, you don't have anything to contribute to the economy. But the, I can't forget that all there's so much of this is market-based, it's like, it's kind of crazy how much it's market-based. Um, you know, that the economy, or part of it, can decide that you are verboten, and so your livelihood is lost if it doesn't agree with what you've got to say, right? I mean, that's like, like when you're talking about, like, how did this sort of, if we want to talk about ideological insinuation into academic institutions, how did this take place? Who made these decisions? How did that happen? Well, there must have been something organic about it. Like, I don't think somebody, a group of people sat in a smoke-filled room and twirled their mustaches to figure out how to ruin the world. Um, right. Like, it, it just happened, like, sort of organically. and you know, in a way, it sort of responded to the business. Who was donating money and who are the paying, you know, who are the paying customers? Um, and it just kind of worked out that way over time. The paying customers, at least more, and I can use the word elite institutions, are themselves members of an elite population, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the state schools probably don't have as much, though at this point in time probably do, just because over time it spreads and that's how things work. And a lot of people, if they're all trained at the same place and then go out, you know, now you have those people in other places as well. But it's it's that kind of the apex of the educational establishment where they've found themselves. And I think it's because they were catering to whoever their customers were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And their customers were like, screw Vietnam is kind of probably where it started. I, I, I kind of feel like that was the case. I have no idea if that's true. Yeah. And then it was like, yeah, ethnic studies. Yeah, you know, uh, apartheid and 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 divestiture, which by the way, all four those good thing. Um, you know, anti nukes, and and it went from that and just snowballed into things that have to do with identity. And well, she has in here that 
Fox News isn't turning working class voters into conservatives. The channel is conservative because it services working class viewers. Yep. Yeah. The very people whom the liberal media abandoned in the 60s to pursue affluent readers and viewers. So she's talking about what we know that even after, because Pulitzer did his job, as did Benjamin Day with their original papers, The Sun, The New York Sun, which was a very popular penny press. And then Pulitzer's papers, they had the original ideology of objectivity and making sure that you serve the people and making sure that you serve the journalistic rigor with honesty and integrity and you do everything right as far as fact-checking and getting your things up to your editors and making sure those editors approve everything that goes out. It was great. But that's not what's taking place today anymore. And, you know, there's very powerful stories that she gets into. Um, you know, Ken, here's, if you look at the credo, this was Pulitzer's credo. We will always fight for progress and reform, never tolerate injustice or corruption, always fight demagogues of all parties, never belong to a party, always oppose privileged classes and public plunderers, never lack sympathy for the poor, always remain devoted to the public welfare, never be satisfied with merely printing news. Mm -hmm. You can't make a living doing that anymore. <laughs> no, you, you, look at this, you look at what people call now the mainstream, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, they're all catering to one particular party and very rich members of that political party. Well, I would, so I, I see things a little bit differently. I don't, I don't think the, see the, I mean, the news, again, I hate Damn, you ignorant slut. I hate that freaking word news, is that the news, such as it is, it's not that it's about the party it addresses. They might work, uh, they might have similar interests. And in out and uh, interests and outcomes, but I think that what we really have here is a you have a political minoritarian uh, uh, construct, which is going to be the right, really, by and large. I mean, let's face it, in terms of politics, state level, um, and certainly most of the federal level in terms of elected offices, um, you have a very large representation of right by what amounts to a fairly small population. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In culture, it's the reverse. What you have is a minoritarian culture, which is a fairly small amount of the population is catered to and caters to um, a fairly small part, you know, a, a, a minority view. And these two minority views are battling it out. One is doing it from its cultural institutions and the other one is doing it from political institutions. And it's hard to say what's going to be worse. I mean, you know, uh, there are some that would say, well, from the political institution, it's going to be worse because, hey, they could pass laws to send your gay ass to jail. Um, highly doubt that will ever. But, you know, let's say kind of, um, and whereas the cultural institutions, they can kind of create market forces that will ban your point of view, mm -hmm. um, but don't necessarily end up in politics, except for with a few exceptions of folks who need to represent that constituency, like your Nancy Pelosi's of the world. Um, and I think that's where we're getting kind of in the empire is between these battles of these two fairly major institutions in American life, and they're both minoritarian, right? They're not actually representative of all people. Uh, when I went to West Virginia <laughs> two weeks ago, I can tell you, I did not see anything that I expected um, 
in a totally different kind of world. Now, I didn't see people waving Biden flags by any stretch, but I actually didn't see a whole heck of a lot of Trump flags either. I saw a lot of folks with plastic netted backwards baseball caps, a lot of people who smoke, a lot of folks who are fairly sizable in girth, um, and not talking about any of this kind of stuff. They were watching the Christmas parade in Princeton, West Virginia. <laughs> and yeah. they were celebrating the cop car that drove down, the fire truck that drove down, whoever was driving the cherry picker that gets used to fix the telephone poles, and a marching band and a couple of churches and the Boy Scouts. And that was it. And that's what kind of, I would like to think, and I kind of do think an enormous amount of America is actually doing and what we are is part, and I'll count myself as among these people, and we're really, and even you, by yep. virtue of where we're in this little teeny tiny little yep. minor, minoritarian location that has outsized influence over the rest of the country. What happens yep. or what looks like it happens, you know? And to your point, Joey, people are tuning into Fox because that's all they've got, you know, relative to if that's the kind of content you're looking for, I would argue that we would all do well to not pay attention to any news at all, because who cares what the Queen of England is doing? I mean, who cares? So few things have any matter in our daily lives. We should care about what's happening at the farm over there or the apartment over here, because that's close to me and that matters. That goes back to the local news, which we don't have any because those papers are all gone. They are, and that's well, their, and there's economic reasons for that. I mean, the, that's this, actually the bigger piece, though. So she talks about what you just mentioned, West Virginia, and I'll say the same thing. When I go back to Minnesota and hang out with my mom and her friends, we're going to barbecues. A lot of them are conservative. They're not reading the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, the New Yorker, and we know from selling, you know, our services through those publications that they're very expensive on the media buy side. We also yeah. know that the audience that's reading The New Yorker can actually afford the watch <laughs> that is being advertised, right? So if, they're, if there's a Petit Philippe or a Rolex or a Piaget, it doesn't matter. They can afford it. So if they're reading a story that The New Yorker's put up or The Atlantic or The Times, that's one thing. And then she talks about that specifically about these elite papers. And I think with this sense, she means culturally elite. And I'm just... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Putting that in there. Journalists are now largely homogenous, specific to cosmopolitan in background and liberal in outlook. Yesterday's ragtag muckrakers who tirelessly champion the little guy against powerful insiders have become insiders themselves. Newsmen had long cherished the vantage points of the outsiders who kept the insiders straight. But now, leading journalists are courted by politicians, studied by scholars, and known to millions through their bylines and televised images. And the first person that came to mind when she told me that was Jonathan Swain and Betsy Woodruff Swan, right? So Jonathan Swan did that interview with Trump where he just kept asking him the same old question over and over, like, well, did you see this? And it says that, and, and you know, he was arguing with Trump. And he, it was the best follow-up question after question after question. Jonathan Swan is a British man who is a very good reporter, and he married... Betsy Woodruff Swan, who is a very powerful MSNBC journalist. And those two have a huge social media following. They're both beautiful and cultured and educated. And that is what she's talking about, specific to your West Virginia example, Jimmy, is that it is a money thing. And that's another thing no one wants to talk about, is that it's not just that journalism has changed. It has changed because it has to change or they can't afford to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. 
that's that's the big piece is that advertising is the only mechanism for digital now right that's where everything sits so that is the bigger problem is that everything in the news media and everything as it relates to true objective shoe leather reporting is no longer objective because it has to sell there's a click analysis there is a media buy analysis there is an advertising revenue model analysis all of those things around journalism are part and parcel to i think the poisoning if you will of what she's talking about her being batia what do you guys think of that jimmy take it away oh i i, I totally agree one of the things in her book she talks about is that you were talking earlier about the algorithms that they'll have a, a piece go out right away. They haven't fact-checked it because you got to be first because you're going to miss yeah. millions of clicks, right? So they'll do it with five different headlines. They quickly see which headline is getting the best click, and that goes out everywhere. Yeah. And, and that's how we're, we're being force-fed our news these days is by just what's attracting us, what, what shiny light is bringing us in. Right, and well, again, if you connect all this to an algorithm, and I believe that the more traditional media landscape is adopting all of the worst... Uh, all of the worst qualities and and infrastructure from digital media. You know, I mean, digital media originally it was like, hey, let's automate a bunch of stuff because it's too hard to buy billions and billions of impressions. And that was kind of it. And then it was like, hey, let's see if we can connect this to some data to see if what we're doing works. Because hey, wouldn't that be nice? And then it was like, well, we can kind of do that pretty well for the most part. It turns out the outcomes were not nearly so great, but good enough, you know, and and at least it was provable or it looked like it was provable, which would make the people who signed the checks keep signing them. But when it became connected to social media, what you took was you, you connected all that to an algorithm that optimized for maximum engagement. And what it found was that enragement maximizes that amount of time. And all of media now follows that. Again, I don't think that it did it because, like I said, a bunch of guys were twirling their mustaches figuring out how to destroy society. It's just, hey, this is how the business works. And it yeah. was purely economics. I mean, again, it's all about the money. And that's what works. I mean, there are so many headlines, and we've just sometimes thrown back and forth amongst ourselves in the social media space where that article was nothing like what yeah. that out that, that headline said. Like, it really right. wasn't. No. Like I said, I've been following that a little too much. Uh, we, we, and we all do. I mean, that's the thing. If we didn't... Well, that great article I sent you guys... It. Sorry to interrupt, Jimmy. That article yeah. I sent both of you, The Atlantic... The terrifying right, and it was like that. Right, the David Brooks piece. Yeah, and I love David Brooks. It's a good, good author. I do. Good piece, but the the, the headline was dog shit. It, <laughs> it, and it had nothing. It didn't really. There was almost no connective tissue. So I, I, yeah. But they did that multivariate testing to figure out which headline worked yep, best. Exactly. And yeah. they ran it. You yep. know. That's. I mean, that's that's got to be. And they. I have seen. I wish I was more. I wish I wasn't so lazy because this is really, it's, it all boils down to lazy. Um, you know, we take screenshots throughout the course of the day of an article that you see getting a lots and lots of play. Because I know, I'm positive. I'm like, I feel like words change. They have. Than, than it did by the end of the day. Like, it, that, that's change. Or the print version of the, because I'll use the New York Times as the example since it's, you know, it's the one we're all kind of look at. You know, what was in print was not what they ran online. Nope. Or the app. Or the online was different than the app. Or but like it's all that's happening to get, you know, in, in again, engagement, some level of engagement. And that's that is the problem that does not have either an easy solution or any solution. 
which is if you could sever the algorithm from the content, you would end up, I mean, you'd still have what you have, which is a certain amount of, I hate to use the word bias, but, and I hate saying that I hate to use the word because I say that a lot now um, because I'm so dissatisfied with all the freaking words. They all, because of this semantic narrowing that McWhorter talks about. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're not going to get rid of that slant because you can't get rid of perspective, but you would at least get maybe a little more honesty out of it, right? I mean, um, you wouldn't be tricking people because we're kind of tricking people for economic reasons, for for money purposes. You actually, in our prep for this, you actually sent out a brilliant uh, email that I'd be your first investor in that magazine if you decided Oh, the one if we had three pipes. I I think that is brilliant. And that's the way all news should be covered. I'd be first in line. You know what? If I weren't so lazy, maybe I'd go ahead and start a Squarespace and we'd see where it went. <laughs> what was the What was the idea, Jimmy? Well, the idea was that you had things broken up in, in three parts. You had kind of like a true just the facts man, like a real like Jack Webb kind of reporting, which was devoid of all adverbs and adjectives. Like, I really do feel, and it's going to sound weird, but I really do feel like that does a lot to change what mm-hmm. we see and how we f- how we feel about it, and to your point, emotions are the elephant, and everything else is the rider on top of it. Um, we don't rational. We're not rational. We just rationalize. I have a great book in here called The Enigma of Reason up on the shelf, which talks about how reason was probably an evolutionary adaptation to convince people that our shit didn't stink, so that they would stick around, you know, and kind of do what we said. But it wasn't because we were right. It was just, it was, you know, it was our version of colorful feathers to get people to come around and do what we wanted. And um, you have that part though. And that's based on a linguistic principle from Benjamin Lee Worf, who was like late 19th, early 20th century, who said that he believes that structure of thought comes from the language we use, not the other way around. And Mm. I firmly believe that if we are an illiterate society, that's the case. I do firmly believe that, that the words get in and start to shape the thoughts that we have. So you have that part. You just get rid of all that stuff. And it is boring as hell. Like, it really is. He used the example. It was, it was, it was good. Uh, oh, air, no, airplane crash, right. Airplane crash is altimeter is suspected. Right. And then the next part is more analysis. Like, huh, what would this mean about altimeters? And, you know, here's what people are trying to figure out. And then finally you have kind of like the opinion folks, which is like, oh my God, because I broke it down as puzzles versus mysteries. Puzzles, you know, you get a picture together because you have all the pieces. But a mystery is through interpretation and practiced intelligence. And that is like, gee, I wonder what the world would have been like if that plane didn't go down because of all the, the ruined lives that were left behind. And, oh, there was a diplomat on the plane that was about to go negotiate peace in the Middle East. You know, the, those are just opinions, and they can be better or worse informed. But you have all of those very def- mm-hmm. definite separations, and that is not what currently happens. Today, the headline would be, the peace. Where world peacemaker dies in faulty altimeter crash. Right, or world, or world <laughs> peace world peace is, is torn asunder because greedy capitalists didn't fix, you know, altimeter on airplane or whatever. I mean, like, it would, it, and, and you would depend on who it was, because then it would be like, you know, if it was, I don't know, a right wing man was big. Arabs crash pain plane, right. you know, and uh, well, whatever. But that's what we end up with. And so the idea was, hey, if you could have something where it was clearly delineated, we're not. I always used to say we're not bad or good. We're just basically stupid. But I don't think that's really true. Like 
most people, if they've lived long enough, and you don't have to live that long, have pretty good guts about things. I mean, they, they really do. If you put 10 people who aren't all like solid in a room, she, what, she, she's, what she's doing is lobbying for food. That's what she's <laughs> like, it's dinner time in 10 minutes. Where's my freaking kibble? Um, you know, but they have pretty good sense of things. And they, and, they, and they do. We have a fairly good internal compass that we don't trust a lot because we're not taught to. And because media environment certainly doesn't lend itself no. to enabling us to. But no. you know, if you gave that to people, they would. If we had something called the Let's Be Reasonable Party, I bet it would get lots of votes. I agree. This is not part of that conversation, but I've told a lot of folks, I think for the first time, well, it's been done before, but I think for the first time, there is a real opportunity for a real third party because you've got the, the crazies on the left, the crazies on the right, and all the rest of us in the middle that, that are either one side of the center or, or to the other that want to do something different. We don't want to let these people run us. I, I think if the right person came along, you could have a strong at the, uh, at, opportunity like, like England and Canada and that kind of a thing. Right, at the very least... Uh, this generation's Ross Perot that brings a Bill Clinton to the Senate mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or whatever. I mean, that's kind right. of what, the, that, right. that's what that, that's what that was. Well, I mean, that's so the, the big piece that they don't talk about in bad news because that's not her purview is that what we understand from our business, right? Being in the media business, as long as we have is that targeted advertising engagement metrics, stickiness changes everything <laughs> because it shifted the goal of having some purchase. She had this, it, it, it shifts the goal of having someone purchase your paper at a newsstand to getting them to your website. Mm-hmm. That was, that was oh. the big difference, right? Oh, and then keeping right. them, keeping them as long as possible. And then that's what we've understood about behavioral science. That's what we've understood as a, as a network of marketing executives. How do we get people to the site? How do we keep them there? And how do we retarget them for more advertising? And I think that's part of the death knell of the newspaper business in general is that, it is advertising first. Mm-hmm. And the cross, yeah. I mean, you may want to talk about this too. The editorial line is no longer, right? There was a space between the actual news historically and the entertainment piece. And now it's all one. And I think that's a big piece too of where newspapers have gone sideways. And where they talk about that with the journalists, as mentioned earlier, is that if you don't have a Twitter following, they're encouraging you to do that at the publication level. So at the Post, at the Times, they want you to have a th- you know, 100,000 or a million followers because if you publish an article on a digital platform, even if it's just that article, the New York Times is getting some Thank level you. of attention, right? And, and that's, a, that's a big piece where I don't think it's really being talked about because it's not, you know... I mean, her thing, I get to get back to her thesis was that for journalists to be effective at a financial level, they have to f- come up with a large, scary narrative, <laughs> right? And obviously rage is one, but she talks about called the moral panic. And the moral panic in this case is racism. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing where she talks about some of the, the yeah, it was some of the actual words like white tears, white racism, white supremacy. I don't have it in front of me here, somewhere in this maelstrom of papers. But the idea there is that someone conducted a, a test, a 
and I can't remember the researcher's name, but from 2010 to 2019, how many times they use certain phrases and words. Racism, white supremacy, white tears, those types of words used in 2010 had a 1,500% increase yeah, yeah. in nine years. And the reason for that, and, and the same thing stood true with Donald Trump. They did the analysis on Donald Trump versus Obama. How many times was Obama mentioned in 2014 versus how many times was Trump mentioned in 2016? Obama was mentioned 47,000 times, and this is off memory, and, and Trump was mentioned 97,000. So it was like a staggering increase in what actually sells newspapers. And then you can kind of get into like the, the running joke, hating Trump is a good business. And I don't, I don't know if you guys remember... Um, Les Monvoons, when he came up and talked about that, where he said, Trump may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. Right. right? That was yep. that was his quote. And the whole idea behind. Oh, here it is. Here's the numbers. Yeah, it was close. So Trump was mentioned 93,292 times. Obama was mentioned 47,958. Yeah. And this is where the this is where the rubber meets the road, gentlemen. During the last three months of 2016, the Times added 276,000 digital subscribers compared to 184,000 for all of 2015. Yeah. That was just the last quarter. In 2017, the paper bought, they brought in $340 million in online subscriptions. 46% more than 2016. In 2019, it added more than a million new digital subscriptions and got and met its $800 million revenue goal a year early. Mm -hmm. So if you want to talk about Trump Hate bringing sells. back, Trump brought back the news. <laughs> it did. Vanity Fair saw a huge, uh, I mean, Vanity Fair saw a big old uh, surge in its, uh, I, yeah. hate to use surge, sorry, I, hate to, I hate to say it, I hate to use, but <laughs> they saw a big surge in there. I mean, every like, Anything, and I mean, part of it was because, um, who's it, Graydon Carter, was he the, the publisher? Mm -hmm. You know, is like a big Trump enemy. Yep. And so, of course, oh my God, if it's not, if, it, if it's something that's anti Trump, we'll, we'll buy. You know, I mean, they did, they did great. MSNBC saw their ratings, you know, oh go God. what was oh for God. them through the roof. CNN, MS. Uh, that used to be my, in, in our banters back and forth on Facebook, we used to talk a lot about that is that there was a new anti Trump book out every week because. You had 85 million people yeah. that were just going to buy it because it was against yeah. Trump. Yeah, let's do it. Look, quote, ready quote, audience. Cuomo's COVID book was as just as much about how he was not Trump, even though he's an awful lot like him. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. it, was about, <laughs> it was about the things he did. Like, to read, they're taking the money back. Well, then they're, they're asking back. for it. Yeah. yeah, we'll see how that goes. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Well, this also gets into what you were talking about, Jimmy. So, why don't you just for the audience explain the difference between first party data and third party data, and then I'll get into the article here. Let's see. What be first party data? Uh, technically, first party data comes from the company that is um, the company with the customers. So if I'm an advertiser and I've put out ads, or uh, and you've done something with them, anything that happens in in my world on my site, if you buy my stuff, that's first party data. Uh, the way to think about it is first party data is what I'm gathering. If you come into my house, you come into my house and I'm gathering first party. I've got Kevin, uh, 
Kevin drank a beer. I've got his fingerprints on my glass. Um, you know, he's sitting you know in my, my daughter chair. drinks Modelo. I know that his daughter <laughs> drinks Modelo. He mentioned it. Um, you know, that he does, doesn't mind cats. Like there's a whole bunch. That's all first party data. Yep. Third party would be if I was out on the street and I did, and I worked for a company that just gathered information and I stopped you on the street and asked you some questions, got your name, maybe, you know, some other, what do you like? Do you, or do you drink soda? Do you like dogs or whatever? And then I take all of that from as many people as I can ask on the street and then sell it to anybody who's interested in the different kinds of questions I've asked about that reveal something about people in general. Um, so are they going to buy a car soon? Um, you know, are they going to have a baby? Things like that. Third party would be I'm doing it independently and then selling it to you, the advertiser, or you, a publisher. And first party is it's what I'm getting in my house. It's it's my own personal perfect pleasure. Thank it's you, sir. So my stash. In in Bhatia's book, she actually references this, and she says in May of 2020, the Times announced it would no longer use third party data. Why, you may ask? Well, <laughs> because they didn't need it anymore. They yeah. had so much first-party data that they could actually use it themselves. And to further monetize this new insight, because they have so much data as a first party, that they started an internal team called Data Science Group. And within that, they created an AI algorithm, Jimmy. Then they created a machine learning algorithm, and it predicted which emotions future articles would evoke. <laughs> so, and they sell this data to advertisers. So they're actually selling it back to us, the agencies, to go out and use this, you know, for our media buys, who can choose from 18 emotions, seven motivations, and 100 topics. This is now the business of the New York Times, who's making, you know, a billion dollars a year in subscription revenue. That's not including all the ad revenue, right? For the yep. high-priced garments that people can buy there. So yep. this is what, so it's a little more than ironic to see the paper embracing the sensationalist approach it once derided <laughs> with once important differences. Where Day and Pulitzer appealed to the sensations of the poor and the working class, the Times revamped sensationalism today to prick the emotions of the rich. I like that specific alliteration. And if you want to know what makes America's educated liberal elites emotional, you only have to open the times to find out. That was her push. Yeah, it's brilliant. That's absolutely a true statement. I think I I believe that there's a true statement. I do. That is the, that is absolutely the case. And I in this case, I, oh, go ahead, buddy. Well, I I actually had recently signed up uh, for the New York Times online version because sort of sort of like you said, no way. You gotta <laughs> you gotta know what the enemy's thinking. You gotta read the playbook, and it is funny because I'll read. Uh, I'll read online and I'll read the Post and New York Post and other oh, things. Yeah, we know. <laughs> Just in case somebody didn't think it was the Washington Post. Right. And, and you can see that the 20 things that they think is important. You go then to the New York Times and it's 18 different things. Yeah. They might talk about, I mean, like when the Rittenhouse thing uh, happened, when that judgment came down, it was on everybody's front page. Everybody's talking. It was buried in the New York Times. It was kind of like, yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. it was way down. Way down. I, uh, see, I always, so, I mean, I was read on the app. So it, mm -hmm. I, I, it's always, uh, whatever the app is putting forth. And that changes pretty regularly, yeah. depending on what's getting play and what's important. I mean, I always feel like it's, I don't know, nine days out of 10, something to do with COVID. And then that, that's and the then, lead. And then you scroll down and then it's, 
if somebody important has died and that somebody important that they think is important that they like. Their number one breaking news right now, Trump fraud inquiries focused. Did he mislead his own accountants? Yeah. Thank you, New York Times. Let's go sell some papers. Well, Well, yeah. What they're going to do is they're going to get shares and links and with that, and somebody's probably done an econometric model somewhere. So they've done a regression analysis of, okay, if we run these kinds of stories at this time, they have to, because you can collect this data and find out this time of day, this many shares will happen. The folks who are going to get those links frequently can't actually read whatever it is because there's a paywall. Mm-hmm. But hey, what I can do is present them with a dollar a week for four weeks. Sign right. up now. Right. And if you are partic- if you are a person of a particular economic uh, liquidity, you sign up for that. You pay your four bucks, but you don't quit. You you basically join the gym during mm-hmm. the, the offer period, and then you keep auto charging because that's the way it goes. And because you've got enough money, you're not going to miss the fourteen ninety five or seventeen ninety nine or show whatever it has, depending on what your subscription level was for out infinitum. I would be curious to know as a media person if I was buying their audience, be like, all right, so how many engaged users do you have on a daily basis? And oh, your subscribers, how many of them you, because you'll know, are coming back on a regular basis? Um, Or are they just kind of stuck because they signed up kind of like with AOL? I mean, that's how AOL lasted for as long as it did, even after the whole notion of a, uh, a proprietary service like that mattered. Because it was just auto-charged on your card, and there you go. Yep. It Whatever. just disappears. And, and that's why they're, do- they're not doing it because it's going to go ahead and like, oh, we'll just get better news. Though I would like to think somebody somewhere is thinking about that. But it's I can collect a whole bunch of people that are going to sign up. And I've already calculated cost of breakage, which is how many people won't sign up afterwards or do sign up and cancel. So what? I pick up a 1,000 new subscribers, and half of them get stuck and I lose that. Terrific. Yeah. I can just keep running stuff mm-hmm. like that based on whatever the algorithm has this dictated that that's going to yield the most return. Because at the end of the day, media is a business. It's a business. Right. And I think people forget that. And I also, this is where we go back and forth too, Kevin, is that I will admit to you that the, the left, there's a left bias to the New York Times. I don't think that's a big debate among anyone of reason. But as I've said numerous times in our back and forth is that you know they produce 200 plus articles a day. And so there is clickbait. There is using this data sciences platform to figure out how to tweak people's emotions. But that's maybe how many is that? 10%? You know, it's the, it's the articles that get people to read it. But then there's really good reporting internationally. There's really good reporting on some of the more complex topics specific to old school journalists and journalists that do have objectivity, you know, as their their sacrosanct mission, right? So I, I, I don't want to take too much away from them as a journalist. And by the way, that was the, the collective opinion of the journalists on our team is that there is good journalism still alive and well. And then some of the young kids that I'm talking to at J schools now, just at a qualitative level, they're very interested in remaining objective. And we'll see what happens when they get out there and get a following. You know, will will they write an article about gender dysphoria as an example? Because if they report based on evolutionary biology and they interview people that disagree with the mainstream, they will get hammered. So we'll see. You know, I don't know exactly how that all will work out. But to your Trump mention, she talks about this too in the book, is that the reason a lot of people like Donald Trump, including most of my friends and relatives, they're much like you. Kevin, in the sense that they don't necessarily like him as a human being. They don't want their daughter to date him. 
They don't want their children to emulate his behavior as a father, a friend, a businessman. They get that. But what he did do, and this is what they talk about, their motivations for Trump were his motivation to choose Supreme Court justices, which he did, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And he stacked the court. He did what he said he was going to do. That's a motivational reason that you can't really argue with. If you're on the left, he's like, well, that's bullshit. They stacked the court. You're like, We'd have done it too if we could have, right? So that's you what Trump did. Judges, you got three openings. You're going to put your people in there. He's going to do it. He also catered to their religious beliefs, which is kind of funny in the sense that of a guy who holds a Bible upside down in front of a church that you just cleared with the military presence. A little awkward, obviously. But my friends are religious for the most part. And so the fact that he even claims to be religious, they like. Um, his anti-war position was popular. Mm-hmm. His, his bad trade deals with China was popular. He did a very good stuff with uh, black prisoners, right? He, he, mm-hmm. I mean, he, so he's done good things. His American first immigration stance, you know, it's funny because I thought that blacks and Hispanics would vote against him in droves. And right. from 2016 to 20, 2020, they actually increased. So yep. he had a 50, Dramatically 52%, increased. Dramatically. Yes, 52% of Latinos favored deporting anyone who crosses the border illegally. And so he got a ton of Hispanic voters. And that's also a big piece of where, you know, you have to understand who you're talking to. And obviously the Times is not talking to most of my relatives and most of my friends from high school. They're talking to us. Mm-hmm. And, and that is a big piece of her entire book is that the liberal media has become culturally elitist, if not economically elitist. And because of that, it has to cater to what she calls the moral panic to those articles, specifically race articles, specifically yeah. intersectionality, yeah. critical yeah. race theory, yeah. um, DI training. If you look at all of those words and how they all bubble up, none of this is actually that new in the sense that as I started to do homework on critical race theory, and for anybody who hasn't listened to any of my stuff or hasn't dived into it, critical race theory was something that spawned in law schools and grad schools uh, by Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and Richard Delgado and other big academic thinkers in the academy. And the idea was to understand how the origins of our country were woven with racism and oppression, and then how Jim Crow kind of buttressed that in a really horrible way. And then from that, how we see things today around racism and where it's woven into systemic issues. And we got into this this week, the three of us, or I don't even know if you're on this, Jimmy, but you know, we were talking about systemic racism and saying, I agree that it exists. Everyone that I've talked to on my podcast, whether they're black, white, or, or whatever nationality, they have agreed. Um, and even my favorite, and I don't even know where John McCorder is, but as a black intellectual Columbia professor, I sent you a lot of the stuff even yesterday just because he does believe systemic racism exists, but he doesn't buy into the Zendi, Robin D'Angelo, anti-racist movement that this third wave of anti-racism is helpful. Well, you know what our, going, yeah. You know what our friend Ben says? This is his quote. See if I can read it right. If you cannot define a problem clearly, clearly you cannot propose a solution. Systemic racism or institutional racism or implicit racism is a miasmatic, as asthmatic, deliberately vague charge. Name the racist policy, name the racist person, so we can all fight racism together. 
that's kind of my thinking about it. Just to go say, oh, you're a racist and this country's racist and the banks are racist. Where's the fix? Well, the fix, here's the, here's the thing. The, and the fix is what's wholly unhelpful is that if, you know, I mean, the question of institutional racism or what the, the stand-in word mm-hmm. systemic racism is, should yeah. certainly be asked and is worthy of all forms of exploration that we can mm-hmm. bring to bear. But it, its answer shouldn't be er- eradication because... What shouldn't be the case is the answer is assumed by the question about mm-hmm. it, which is that if everything from foundational document on forward is racist, then the only way to get rid of racism is to burn the whole thing down. Revolution, it doesn't really appeal to any, I mean, I mean, it doesn't appeal to the masses, let's put it that way. It appeals to a fairly, fairly small, narrow group of people, even narrower than those who are um, maybe outwardly advocating mm-hmm. some level of more mm-hmm. radical transformation. But if that is your argument that from the Constitution onward is racist, then the only real answer is that those institutions must be destroyed. And Correct. revolution versus evolution is not appealing mm-hmm. to anyone because what that is is anarchy. And nobody's mm-hmm. really a big fan of I mean, regular folks are not fans of anarchy. Because otherwise, you end up with Hobbes called you know life that's uh, you know short and brutish. Um, ben likes to talk about the the Constitution as being a well written document that the founding fathers never truly lived up to, and that over time we have been making improvements, corrections, trying to reach the level of of utopia that the document tried to outline. Right. I mean, the purview of the document itself had, was. Uh, it, history outlived its relevance mm-hmm. within like 20 years. I mean, I think so there's some people who really like to quote Jefferson rather frequently who said that we should have a revolution every, you know, however many years or whatever. I don't remember what the quote is, but I know it exists. And the idea that, okay, well, we've got this amendment system that will go ahead and alter it. Well, remember, this was written in a time where there weren't that many differences between each colony, mm-hmm. both in terms of population or what it is that everybody kind of needed to do in order to survive. The whole place was largely agrarian, right? So even if you were up in the north and we're like, eh, I'm not really doing the slave thing. And even if you were in the south, you're like, eh, I got to have the slaves in order to go ahead and get my, you know, my, my farm working. You both had farms and there's some level of commonality. Over time, we had like agrarian America and then we had agrarian versus industrial America. And then we had agrarian versus industrial versus expansionist America. And then you had agrarian versus industrial versus expansionist versus development of speculative America, and then on and on until you finally have like, I don't know, I wouldn't say 50 different kinds, but I bet you we've got seven or eight. And if I spent a little more time on it, I could probably come up with mm-hmm. decent categorizations for it. The one document wasn't meant to no. persist beyond that. No. There's a great, the great book, I, I can see it on my shelf now, by Chuck Klosterman called, But What If We're Wrong? <laughs> and he goes through. A yeah, you bunch. mentioned that. I gotta, I gotta look into that. It's that so freaking good. But when he says, you know, hey, maybe, whole, and I probably mentioned this before, maybe the whole problem is, is that we think that this document is so great, and that's actually incorrect. Two hundred years from now, when people are writing stories about the demise of America, <laughs> they'll look to the cause as being the Constitution. And I'm like, what a radical notion that is! Um, you know, voting is actually bad, and getting everybody votes is bad because. 
your vote matters more than fewer people who vote. And so voter <laughs> suppression is good. And like, I mean, you know, he, he goes to these series of somewhat absurd yeah. thought experiments just to lead you to a place of thinking differently. And I'm like, well, he actually, John McCorder, and I'll get into his book. His book is called Woke Racism. But to your point, Kevin, this is at the end of my notes here. It says the idea of what Americans need to do is simply get rid of racism is a 10-year-old's version of political progress. Mm -hmm. Right. Racism refers not just to prejudice, but also to societal inequity. Racism also a matter of past as well as present attitudes and policies. Something this protein, layered and timeless, must be restrained as much as possible but it is impossible to simply get rid of it. And this was a response because there was a tweet by um, Ta-Nehisi Coates that said that white supremacy is the only thing holding back black culture. Mm. And there's, as someone who's a huge fan of Ta-Nehisi Coates, by the way, I think he's a brilliant writer. I think his stories, you know, his letters to his son, it's a, between Me and the World is a beautiful book. I, I liked it much more than Imbram Zendi's book, Anti-Racism, and I disliked Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility, with a white-hot passion. <laughs> white, white being operative here. But the idea there is that what he gets into, and he does a really good job of opening up his book by saying this. First wave anti-racism battled slavery and legalized segregation. Second wave anti-racism in the 1970s and 80s battled racist attitudes and taught America that being racist is a moral flaw. Third wave anti-racism is becoming mainstreamed in the 2010s, teaches us that because racism is baked into the structure of society, white's complicity in living within its constituents, it constitutes racism itself. And that's where they redefine the word racism. Because racism, historically defined, and currently in Webster's Dictionary, is that you, and I'm paraphrasing, but that you believe because of your color you are better than another human being. Not because you have benefited from white supremacy or white privilege, right? Which is a whole other topic. But that's where he gets into it. And then... Yeah, so that, I was very happy because he actually described something that I thought was really cool. And then he said, if you're reading my book because this religion has started to drive you crazy and you want to know what the hell this is about, it's about time to do it, that's why you're reading it. Because it has become a religion. And whatever color you are, in the name of acknowledging power, you are to divide people into racial classes mm. in exactly the same way that first and second wave anti-racism taught you not to do including watching your kids and grandkids being taught the same, despite the progress on racism, has been so resplendent over the past 50 years that an old school segregationist brought alive to walk through America, even in the deepest South, would find it hard to turn the side of the road and wretch at what he saw. I mean, this is a very elegant mm -hmm. interpretation, and I love John McCorder. I've read a lot of his books over the years, and I think that he's done a very good job of tackling what the term means today, and then identifying it with a religion. And he says, in 1500, it was not about being Christian. In 2020, it's not about being sufficiently anti-racist. They do, they do not see that they too are persecuting people for not adhering to a religion. And that's where he says, this isn't about, I'm not comparing anti-racism wokeness to a religion. I'm saying it is a religion. And then if you fight them, and he gets tons of hate mail, as a black intellectual, 
right? And he yeah, talks oh, about yeah. that. I am sure oh, yeah. he does. Yeah. And, and, and those are the things I think that are just staggering well, to me. The, the thought that I had after watching your podcast with your friend, the educator from Houston, um, that, that you and I have a big stake in ourselves as this, as everybody who is white is now a racist and, and all that. Yeah. She said that, that teaching all the white kids that they're racist is having a huge impact on her students because of mixed race children. So now they are being taught that one of their parents, whether it be the father or the mother, right. is evil. Right. They are evil. And so you're teaching a six, seven, eight, nine-year-old, your parent is evil. So I looked well, it up, just, just Google static, and it, it's fascinating. The demographics of the United States um, right now is 61% uh, white, non-Hispanic. Somewhere that, that non-Hispanic got in there, but yes. 61% <laughs> non-Hispanic. Once you include mixed race, 71% mixed white race. So you're going to start affecting and, and you're going to start criticizing a lot of people that aren't going to be able to, to accept that. And what's interesting is that because so much is motivated by the notion of self-esteem that we must feel mm -hmm. like we're okay, you're trying to make sure that someone else feels okay by making sure that someone else mm -hmm. doesn't feel okay. And it ends up becoming zero sum from the other direction, right? Yeah. I mean, there's always been so much argument against zero sum is when it, like, like my cousin likes to say, she's like, you know, just because somebody gets to have more of their rights doesn't mean you get less. Mm -hmm. It's not pie. And I'm like, you know, but that is exactly what this is. Or only it's, only it's internal, right? It's, 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 it's mental, it's emotional. I need to feel less or worse so that someone else can feel that. And it's not that I'm uh, me who's feeling worse is actually making that other person feel better. It's that someone institutionally has decided that that's what will take place. And I don't know that there's any evidence for that. I mean, it certainly doesn't, I mean, it, I don't know how you'd ever do like a scientific experiment to find out that is what's working, but I don't think it is. I mean, it is a religion insofar as it is being practiced based on faith. Mm -hmm. And what an organized expression of faith is, is religion. Yeah. That, well, he even breaks that down to saying that the original sin in this case. And, and that's exactly is what being, it is. Is being white, right? That's right. the original sin. And you can't, you can't shed that. But no you, matter how hard you try. You, you cannot be baptized. You can't have that original sin baptized away. See, yeah. I, that's my, I'm not Catholic, but that's my, because I, I kept making that same leap. It's like the original sin, except they give you, again, going back to my radar detector, they give you, you are doomed to eternal, to eternal uh, hell unless you accept Jesus and they gave you the answer. There's no answer to this. In well, this and that's the thing. And I think McGuire talks a little about that is there isn't a way to mm -mm. expunge yourself of whatever no. that is. Mm -mm. She because says that. Yeah. Yeah, she says that. It's going to take you thousands and thousands of hours to extract the racism from your being. Right. And, and it's like, well, that's just not by virtue of your whiteness, you're racist. You can't do that. Uh -huh. as, as I say, as like aspirin tan white guy that I am. <laughs> but, but I mean, like, no matter how hip I get, no matter how much, you know, down I want. I mean, God, I'm using all the wrong words, I'm sure. Like, just burn you it down with the kids. Whatever the kids are saying these days, whatever, right you know, I mean, I feel like I'm turning into Officer Krupke. Um, <laughs> but it's like, like, there's nothing you can do. Like, there isn't an answer for that. 
Um, there isn't a, there isn't actually a way out. You cannot be Baptist because even if you do adopt all of these things that you're saying, you would be supposedly um, set free for having done. You won't be. Mm-hmm. Like you actually aren't set free because even though you don't know it, you still are mm-hmm. because of, by virtue of your position. Like mm-hmm. you can never get outside of your. No matter what you do, you can never get outside of your perspective. Mm-hmm. I can't get outside of my head. The and I've spent way more time than most human beings should thinking about the notion of subjective experience, but there isn't a way beyond it. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a wonderful essay by Thomas Nagel called How to Be a Bat. Um, how to be what? How to be a bat. A bat, like like a Batman. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and he chooses it because it's just kind of an absurd thing, but we all know what they are. And it's like to say what a thing is like or to try to say I can be like is still a statement of what you are not, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The only way to know what it would be like to be, and he doesn't go too deep into the bat thing, actually, as it turns out, but is to be something is to then forget who you are or forget what you are. I can't pretend to be my cat. Like I can try to empathize with mm-hmm. them as living creatures, but I have no idea and will never be able to access what the world looks like for them. Right. I can come very close. I can come very close. If we agree on language with each other, that helps. If we are in the same physical mm-hmm. environment, that helps even more. But at no point in time am I ever actually going to see the world from behind your skull. Well, right now they're hungry, so there's a lot of hate. So I can't get in, uh, in their minds right now. I know. <laughs> Damn it, I'm the boss. <laughs> So I'm not really, but I'm going to say that for now. Well, see, that's and that's part of where this woke in this his term. It's a tough term, but in this sense, it's a pejorative. After the George Floyd murder, he records this in his book. Social media recorded another episode in which white protesters bowed down to black people standing right in front of them as they received their anti-racism testaments. Many in tears. Some white activists strolled around with painted whip scars on their body to show their sympathy for the black condition. I mean, if, if that's not a religion, I don't know what is, because that is, and, and that's insulting to the black population. And this is what I he's mean, talking I about. It's like, that's... That's cultural appropriation. Well, I, I, it's all... Well, it's, that. Yeah, it's, it's gross. And, and, that. and that actually brings me to some of the humor that I remembered from this, because I don't know if you go, Michael Che, from Saturday Night Live... <laughs> Has his I think own, he's hilarious. I think he's fantastic. And I've watched some of his comedy in stand-up on Netflix recently. And he's fantastic. And then I jumped online to watch him. And he had a show, an actual skit. I'm not sure if he did it with, uh, you know, Pete Davidson or whoever. But it was very clever in that he got trapped on an elevator with a white, woke woman. <laughs> and she was, you know, sobbing. And I'm so sorry. And I, my, my white guilt and blah, blah, blah. And he's just like, you know, fucking... <laughs> Pushing the button, he's like, I just got to get out of here. And it's just one of those things where you're like, okay, you can take it too far. And and I think the neat thing about, you know, to kind of get to the brass tacks of his of his book here is that he really gets into solutions and examples that going against again, he he, he takes considerable time to poo-poo. Zimbram Zendi and Robin DiAngelo and, and Ta-Nehisi Coates specific to that claim that you can never be good enough, you can never be woke enough. And then he gives really two powerful examples that he said only a black man could give 
because otherwise you would be attacked as a racist. I will share this with you anyway. Oh, in 1987, boy. a rich donor in Philadelphia adopted 112 black sixth graders. So 1987. And few who'd grown up with fathers, he funded their education all the way through college as long as they stayed away from drugs, stayed out of legal trouble. He gave them tutors, workshops, and after-school programs to keep them focused. 45 of them never finished high school. Of the 67 boys, 19 became felons. 12 years later, 45 girls had 63 kids between them, and more than half of them became mothers before the age of 18. So this is what he said to Ta-Nehisi Coates. So what exactly was the racism that held these poor kids black? Back, excuse me. The answer is none. Social history is too complex to yield to the either-or gestures of the Robin DiAngelos of the world. What held these poor kids back was that they had been raised and made a different sense of what is normal than white kids in the burbs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. That is another way of saying culture and the sky will not fall in on you if you say so. Now, again, I wouldn't say this publicly. I'm reading it. <laughs> but what he's pointing to is a much bigger thing. And my brother, who is a progressive liberal law professor, angry human being, he said, like, this kind of stuff. He's like, you and all your rich friends talking about this as though you can solve problems. Robin DiAngelo and all her rich friends talking about it as they're going to solve racism. He said, racism is not going to be solved. And McHorter says that in his book. He also gives a second case. The Philly story was not a fluke. In Kansas City, 12 new schools were built for black students that had been mired in such for decades. The effort cost $1.4 billion. The new schools included broadcast studios, planetariums, big swimming pools, and fencing lessons. Per-pupil spending doubled. Class size was halved to 25 per class. They got their own computers, had 55 counselors for them before they had zero. Fade out, fade in. Dropout rates stayed the same. The achievement gap between whites and blacks sat frozen, and the schools ended up needing security guards to combat theft and violence. The reason for this was nothing pathological about the kids, but it wasn't racism that anyone could simply eliminate either. The racism in question had been threaded subtly through the endless currents and eddies of decades of social history leading to that moment. Mm -hmm. So what is his remedy? That was my question. Holy cow. It's a very cogent man. He gets the joke. It's this simple. Not simple, but he says this. There should be no, no war on drugs. Society should ban, should get behind teaching everybody to read the right way, phonics versus traditional, and we should make solid vocational training and easy to obtain as a college education. Mm -hmm. And he said, end of the war on drugs because of this. Because drugs are illegal, there is a black market for them, Un underserved black men often drift into this black market, an understandable choice when schools have failed them. If there were no such black market for hard drugs, these same men would get legal jobs. Any legal work would be better than selling drugs, which puts people at risk or being killed or going to prison, which leaves more children behind to grow up without a father. Teach reading properly. This is what my brother talks about. And this is Confucius, right? They said, if your problem is a month, plant rice. If your problem is for a year, plant trees. If your problem is for, if your problem is real, educate children. Or if your problem is for a hundred years, educate children. And he says the same thing. Make sure kids not from book lined homes are read with phonics. There are two ways to teach children to read. Phonics is one, sounding out the letters. The other is called whole word method. You know this, Jimmy. 
what is what most of us grew up with. Since the 60s, phonics has proven to be more effective at teaching poor kids to read, kids without books in their home. Kids like this need to be, well, taught to read. This is hurting our poor black kids badly. Generations of black kids disproportionately poor have been sideswiped by inadequate reading instruction. So that's the second bullet. The third is get past the idea that everyone must go to college. Yep. Advocate vocational training for poor people and battle the idea that real people going to college, real people go to college. Meaning that if you're not going to school, if you don't have a four-year degree, you're not real or you're not relevant. And that's a huge piece. A return to truly valuing working class jobs. Attending a four-year college is tough, expensive, and even unappealing for many poor people. Across America, we must instill a sense of vocational school, not college in the traditional sense, that is a valued option for people who want to get beyond what they grew up in. You know, I've always been uh, in the industry. I've always been on the advertising sales side and running, you know, sales teams and all that. And we always had in our hiring must be a college grad. Uh, Why to go sell a, a, a banner ad? You need right. college. You don't need anything right. from that. To just know how to be a nice person. You don't need education for that. Look at me. <laughs> well, I mean, he's right, though. I mean, I think that that's the thing that it's all of this focus on a re a, a, a new definition of racism mm-hmm. that has permeated our educational system, our corporate America, intersectionality being the training for us executives and how that all works. And to your point exactly, Kevin, when Acacia and I were talking about this, she is a highly educated educator who had taught at the American school in Lagos in Nigeria for six years And she said she didn't deal with any racism there. It was all based on a true melting pot of kids that came from France, Germany, South Africa, South South America. And they had to put a mandate in to get 10% of kids from America. (laughs) So that was one of those things. And when she came back and talked, and this is to Kevin's point, I explained earlier what critical race theory is. Part of the derivative of critical race theory is intersectionality. And intersectionality is kind of the, if you're a white female who has dealt with bigotry by being a female, you have a different plight than a black female who also had to deal with, you know, the the feminist comeuppance, but you had not only that you were female, that you were black. So there was those pieces and that's why they teach it. But what she was saying is that in her class in Houston, Houston is a really big, diverse uh, city. And she said, I'm going to use the white man as an example, because I'm I'm thinking of a, a family specifically, where there's a white man who's married to a black woman, and they now have mixed children. And because of that, she said, historically, if you are a mixed child, you have identity problems to begin with. And so if I, as a teacher, am told that I need to teach my children the oppressor oppress narrative Mm -hmm. that your father is white thereby making him an oppressor and your mother is black thereby making her the oppressed they now have to go home and ask their parents about that and this is what parents are upset about so in the press on msnbc you'll see that they're fighting over critical race theory and no one does a very good job explaining this is not critical race theory not even close 
This is a derivative of critical race theory that talks about the oppressor-oppressed narrative. And the big problem that we both agreed on, even as a liberal, we're both liberals, but she said, it's too early to teach this to kids. And maybe that could take place in a high school history class, right? Where there is such a thing as an oppressor-oppressed narrative. It does exist or has existed in the past. Sometimes it still exists in certain areas. Criminal justice is the thing that you and I are going back forth in the other day. That's where systemic racism exists. Even toward John McCorder, he gives examples of that. But the difference is that we're not even using the language anymore. And I think that's what really is the burn my saddle as a media guy is that the importance of words is very important. And if we're mm -hmm. going to talk about how we eradicate racism as a whole by accusing an entire race of white people for being inextricably racist, and no matter what you do, you cannot weed yourself of this. That, that to me, is so deleterious to the movement. <laughs> it doesn't make sense at a reasonable level, and it just frustrates the hell out of me. And that's why I was so happy to read McCorder's newest book, because he says the same thing. All this is bullshit. All the stuff that Zandy's doing and Robin's doing, it doesn't help the cause. The cause, he broke it down into three things. And he said, why only three things? Well, you got to make the platform as pragmatic as possible. In the 2010s, Black Lives Matter composed one of these long list of demands which had no impact on the Black Lives sense. It's been 12 years. And so what he's trying to say is, He's, he gives an example about police reform. I heartily espouse police reform, but consider it unlikely that anything will be done to stop cops from firing their weapons in risky situations. Mm -hmm. And better educated people with solid jobs raised more often by two parents able to focus their attention upon them will be much less likely to end up in ugly encounters with the police. So he goes into things that I obviously wouldn't talk about as a white person and as a liberal, I don't think I ever would have thought about reading him or understanding him five years ago. Mm -hmm. Now as someone who's trying to genuinely understand people like you, Kevin, <laughs> you know, my buddy who has a completely different view of the world. <laughs> I, well, what I'm saying here is I think that we're so close together as a culture and we're still fighting about stuff that we don't need to fight about anymore. Right? I mean, his examples to me were so powerful and how we could actually affect change as opposed to fighting over who's more woke or who's more virtuous, you know, on their sites and, and on their social media feeds. And then, you know, again, weeping in front of black people and apologizing for your white guilt. Th those kind of things to me are religious in nature. And as a recovering Catholic, I can tell you, I want nothing to do with religion on that front. <laughs> Getting back to the thesis. The Dems are in trouble in 2022. Because of these two reasons, Ben Shapiro's power, his media empire that's going to grow exponentially between now and 2024, if somehow Trump and his band of people avoid prosecution <laughs> in the next 10 months, they will win. Like for a year. I don't know how that happens. Teflon well, well, they can also delay the shit out of things through the legal procedures, as we know. I mean, you look at Steve Bannon is not going to court until July. <laughs> and he loves it. He, of you know, he, he loves, loves it. it. He's he digging it. it, right? I mean, so yeah, I think that where, where I'm just going to say, I, I'm nervous about this left, this far left movement, even if it's fringe, 
Okay, which is the big everyone, all my friends are saying, Joe, you're over you're seeing too much. It's not that big a deal. It's fringe. I don't see I don't think it's fringe anymore. It's, no, I, it's forefront. It's forefront. It's here and forefront. it's problematic. I think it's dividing our culture even further. And when you actually start to divide liberals, and, and I've kind of broken it up this way, as far as my own framing, is that there's liberals like myself, and then there's far leftists that maybe are called progressives, if you will. And they're the ones that are buying into the anti-racist movement. It's a very different piece. They're buying into postmodernism. They're buying into neo-Marxism. They're buying into the, in postmodernism, I mean the fact that there are no more grand meta-narratives out there. That the institutions themselves are all poisonous. They need to be blown up and started from scratch. And then built back into this, you know, Marxist utopian vision, if you will. And then on the right, you have the conservatives like you, Kevin, who will, and even vote for Trump. And then you have Trumpers that just love Trump for who he is. And that's a very different demographic on itself. So you almost have like four people in our body politic. You have these four factions, I should say. And I think that the right has much more unity. So even the Trumpers and the conservatives, if they don't agree on how far they should push things, they're still gonna vote for the same person. On the left, <laughs> we we will argue amongst ourselves. We will, you know, put ourselves in a circular and firing squad and let her rip. Well, I mean, the the left will hold its breath until it turns blue, in order to like, and stomp its foot and that sort of thing. And there's a certain there's a certain kind of like spoiled child reaction sometimes about it for some reason. And I don't know why that is. I have to give it more thought. But but there is. There's a certain kind of like. Yeah, and, you know, and and yeah. and they kind of like. I don't care if this means bad for everyone because I'm coming from a place of such principle mm -hmm. that that's yeah. all that matters. Yeah. Whereas the, the the right, oddly, at least now, and again, I don't know for sure. I'd have to spend more time with it, but kind of has a, like a there's a certain level of pragmatism there. I mean, you'd mentioned earlier, like a lot of folks were like, yeah, Trump, because they knew we were going to put uh, a certain level of Supreme Court justices mm -hmm. yeah. or other folks on the court throughout the system that would endorse or support their views, whether it was on religious practices, yeah. but ultimately abortion. I mean, a lot of folks yeah. forget this. Kellyanne Conway exists for only one reason. She was an ardent anti-abortionist for her entire career and she would always align herself with any movement that was going to try to bring that about and she saw trump as that answer and she hitched her wagon to that horse and you know defended it as much as possible and did quite you know i'd say a fairly reasonable job she's i have to say I miss, I miss her she's an excellent rhetorician nobody, and she's not an could, idiot. nobody could spin out of a conversation but there was only her. one reason for it it wasn't because she thought trump was such a great guy it was because of the, the issue that she knew that he would represent her own interests. And I feel like there's a lot of that more on the, you know, right, Republicans, oh, whatever you want to say, than there is in the left. Left is all a bunch of, like, independent me, me, me. There's a certain me, me, me about it that I, I, don't, I don't quite understand. Um, That's right. my point, gentlemen, is this, is that my belief is even more strong today after our two and a half hours of chat than it was previous is that Ben Shapiro is the most powerful man in media. He's going to move an election in 2022. He's going to be even yep. more powerful in 2024. 
And if the left doesn't stop fighting itself, specific to these reinventions of words like racism and intersectionality and oppressor-oppressive narratives to children under the age of eight, we are going to lose in droves based on that alone. So, I mean, we're going to see that uh, mm -hmm. this year, and we can look back on this after the elections and say, hey, we were dead wrong, <laughs> or, well, we were spot on, and now we are going to be controlled by Kevin McCarthy. That that scares me. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and and Matt Gates and cool. Paul Gosar and MTG and all these knuckleheads on the right. So yeah, that's a little scary. Oh Lord. But thank you but, guys for your time and your bow tie, Jimmy, and your uh, Trump tie and your Trump shirt, Kevin. I appreciate it. Representing for Trump, if you ask me. But I had a red I, I got a red tie. I got a red tie in the closet if you wanted music, but it's been staying in the closet. Yeah, Thanks but yours was probably made in America. His was made in China because it was Trump's, and you want to make sure you get that. Probably. Well, guys, as I said earlier, I, I appreciate our friendship. I appreciate our viewpoint diversity. I appreciate you guys as buddies, and it has been great working with you over the last 20 years. Thanks for coming on the show, and uh, I will stop. Thanks for having us. Absolutely, dude. That was awesome. Fun. It, was, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, gents. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.